right, welcome everybody to episode 533, and we are joined by Liam Filipek and Rob Stone, who's filling in for Owen. Owen is under the weather, um, so uh, Rob is going to fill in, so that's cool. Um, and uh, me and Rob were sort of talking about this the other day, and uh, William had a post that he put up, and he had a female that uh, had gone, the female white lip python that had gone much later than the previous year, and some of his thoughts were... Um, you know, along the lines of uh, debunking the idea of pythons breeding only seasonal, um, you know, and we've talked about it multiple times about the cosmic octopus and uh, what is really at play when it comes to breeding pythons. You know, there's a few species of pythons that are able to be bred year round. Ball pythons seem to, to be able to do that. Uh, green tree pythons is another one that comes to mind. Um, but then there's these other ones like, I don't know, diamond pythons. Is it more, is it more, uh, you know, reliant on the weather, the temperature drop? Is it humidity? Uh, are they domesticated? And that's what the reason is, uh, you know, room fluctuations and all that kind of stuff that we we're kind of talking before Rob came back. And um, I don't know. So we're going to get into that. And uh, but before we do that, I got uh, two things that I want to announce real quick. Uh, Northeast Carpet Fest, 8, 12, 12 p.m. to 12 a.m. Um, no animals. And contact Owen about what you're bringing. We do it potluck style. The other one is the, well, it's actually the Texas Carpet Fest, a.k.a. Southern Carpet Fest. It's October 14th from 2 p.m. to 11 p.m. And it's at Replandia in Johnson City, Texas. Um, there will be basically uh, Ari and uh, Quetzal's uh, uh, place and they're going to have it there and uh, I guess you're going to be able to take a tour around and see this, see a couple things but there's two rules that they have first don't bring live animals to the event that seems to be a theme this year with uh, Carpet Fest and <clears throat> it's a bring your own bottle event and I guess they're cutting off alcohol consumption after 5pm uh, because uh, it is a zoo and um, they don't want to do anything to uh, to risk that or jeopardize that project check them out they have a facebook group and they have instagram all right let's get into it um but before we do wait let's go back to indonesia where are you going in indonesia uh i'm going to was uh java bali flores and komodo sweet timor pythons yeah. retics <laughs> all that kind of Dorf, stuff prachai prachai will be there Cool. Should be there, I guess. Yeah. So I'm going to try to knock out as many pythons as I can. Everyone there wants to see the komodos and the <laughs> and the the spitting cobras, king cobras, and I'm just like, ah, oh, that stuff's cool. I'm just, I'm a python guy. I'm like, I'm not that kind of guy who's like, you know, I would like to have rattlesnakes, but I, I, I can't keep them. I go, no, I generally like pythons. I mean, they're, I don't yeah. know, they're just. Very interesting species for sure, or complex, I guess. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm with you 100%. Um, it's a, a lot of times we'll go on these herp trips. Rattlesnakes I like seeing outside, not in a cage, you know. Right, I, don't, right. I don't want anything to do with that. And uh, although beautiful animals, uh, I can admire them uh, just as well flipping a rock or actually right, whoever, right. whoever else flipping a rock because it's usually not me finding the rattlesnakes <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah all good yeah um but uh yeah we were talking about traveling and uh and that kind of stuff so that's what kind of led us to that so everybody knows like where did that come from that's um 
in the yeah, you'll have to let us know how that went because uh that's something that, you know, we talked about the uh the, the language barrier and all that kind of stuff that you kind of have to overcome <clears throat> when you're uh, in those places. So how long is the trip? Oh, it's like two weeks. I'm a little nervous, man. Never left the collection for more than a week before. So I'm going with a group of people and they, okay. they kind of set up the trip and uh, I just gave them the money. So I'm just going down there with them. So they kind of have Sweet. it all planned out. So I was just, uh, I was just like, man, two weeks, man. That's a little, little nerve wracking, you know, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, but you have pythons. They'll be all right. Just the white lips. Right. That's what right. you know. Yeah. White, well, white unfortunately, <laughs> well, it's not unfortunate, but I have a, that's why it's probably a good thing that one, the female laid so late is because now those eggs won't hatch till. Sorry about that, guys. I just froze. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Holy shit. I was like talking and then nothing. Yeah. Oh, shit. Did it cut off right before I assume you were going to say that uh, it was a good news that the white lip eggs were late because it'll yeah. be after your trip? Yeah, yeah. Because I got, I mean, if they hatch, that would be just, I would have 20 something white lips almost between what I have adult wise and from last year and, you know, ring pythons as well. So, oh, that you bred this a, year? No, no, just half, oh. you know, oh, half. and the whole collection that someone would have to take care of or at least check the water and everything. Yeah, you know. 100%. <clears throat> yeah, they can uh, they can get, that can be crazy. Yeah, so we were, the, the question that me and Rob both had is, um, I, I don't know if Rob looked it up or was able to find out what it was, but what's the group that you're going with? Is it the same one that um, Zach Baez went to years ago, saw the patternless Timor and Python on uh, who did he go? I'm going with uh, Daniel Solis. He does a lot of the expedition stuff. Oh, I was okay. talking to him about it, and he does it as a, I guess, as a side business. And I said, you know, I don't know. I know people in in um, Jakarta, but uh-huh. I don't. I mean, we don't. I, they don't speak English. I don't, you know, speak Indonesian. So there'd be that uh, language barrier there. And I don't. I was like, it's just easier to go with people who have been to the area and. You right. know, rather yeah. than just, I can 100%. wing Af. I can eat well. Even Australia and uh, Africa, you can wing those places for the most part, and you'd probably be okay. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, but yeah, he uh, um, he was he was the guy that uh, didn't he do a lot of traveling to like uh, document uh, the dwarf retics and all that were in a lot of those islands. Isn't that the guy? Yeah, Daniel does a lot of those the dwarf retake stuff. He's into the gotcha. at least well, he's in the he's yeah, I would say for the most part. He's he used to do a lot of breeding of the a lot of the localities. Now he's kind of doing a lot more of these expeditions and stuff to like all these different countries. You know. Once you get the taste for it, man, it's <laughs> Oh, it's addicting. You know, and I did and I didn't even see the python in the or all python in the wild i had to go to a zoo and they were my buddy told uh they uh we uh he told the guys at the zoo he goes uh we uh my buddy came from overseas and that's when he uh they said oh you know told him what we were looking for or what i was looking for because it's funny how people treat like rock pythons they're kind of like I, I guess you'd say dirt snakes to them. They don't really. They they expect people to want to see the 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 mambas, the cobras, right. 
you know, stuff like that. But I'm like, no, I, I legitimately love to see a South African rock python. And they go, well, we didn't, we have one that we pulled out of a car and it was this little neonate or something. It was a pretty small one, but that was about the closest to a wild python I was going to get in South Africa with as cold as it was. Yeah. Well, and then the guy at the zoo goes, you know, if you would have let me know or let us know like a few days in advance, we could have hooked you up with someone who does field research, you know, actually has tracked rock pythons. He could have helped or went oh. out and found with them or something. And I go, son of a bitch. <laughs> of course. Next time, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'd like to try somewhere else in Africa, maybe, maybe closer to Western Africa, you know, North or South, you know, to see, you know, um, Angolans or something. Angolans yeah, it's a long or, way for next time, man. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be cool. Oh man. Seeing a wild Angolan Python. That's uh it's almost like an oh, yeah. Pelly Python type of score, you know, <laughs> man, you really, who you put it up there. With? Oh man. I don't know about that. I, they'd be, they'd be pretty cool, but I don't own Pelly's. That's, that's something special, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I really, I don't even know what you would really, maybe finding a new python species, that'd be pretty yeah. cool. But that'd be pretty that, cool. You know, <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. Uh, carpet that uh, everybody didn't think existed on the other side of the mountain in uh, Papua New Guinea right. or something Oh, like geez. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting about that, and I don't know, I don't, there may not be anything to it, but I know somebody... A guy I was talking to about Dun, Dunn's pythons, I was asking him about, you know, could you get me some, you know, a group of them so I can right. import a group of them. And they were showing me that, and then they start showing me this. It just looked like a Maclot python, right? And okay. then they're telling me it came from PNG. I go, what? I go, that doesn't sound right. You go, you, you sure? I go, it looks just like a Maclot python. At least it was kind of a real crappy photo, so it was you know, hard to right. really tell for sure. But from what I could tell, I go, it looks like a Maclot Python. But then the same guys, I, well, I don't know if it was all the same guys, but some of those guys was on a video. They wanted Dan Malary's videos when he went to a reptile expo and they told him the same thing, but that animal looked like a Maclot Python. So I don't know. There's, there's hmm. some, there might be some, I don't, is it that it's a new species or is it that people brought Maclot pythons over there and, you know, kind of like the whole debacle with the Halmahera retics on Halmahera, you know? Right. Could that be an introduced species? Who knows? Yeah. And now what? Retics are in, is it Puerto Rico? That are there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. <laughs> we have berms. Puerto Rico has retics. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I would imagine that it's not I, – I, I would think that there's possibility that there's python species out there that oh, yeah. possibly sure there is. Like, hasn't been discovered I mean, yet. Even in Africa, I'm sure you could go in the Congo, and I'm sure there could be something you just don't know of. I mean, shit, there's those uh, dwarf crocodiles. I, I don't know if they're categorized as a subspecies or anything, but it was uh, – they – live i think their whole lives in a cave system and they wow. developed this orange coloration when they're generally a blackish brown color and they develop they develop like this orange i don't think they said i think they said it was oh man what was it 
fat guano that might have been causing that. I don't huh. think it was because of it. I don't know. It was it was interesting, but who knows? There could be pythons there. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It's not it's not crazy to think it. You know. Yeah. What do you think, Rob? Is there a lost species of python out there in the world somewhere that uh, hasn't been found? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, certainly new species of a variety of different things are found all the time, and there are definitely areas of you know high endemism where we see that. Right. So in Vietnam, you know, in karst habitats and stuff, it's. I remember, you know, every year it'll be oh, 20 new species of. Usually, it's more things that are less noticeable, right? Insects right. or arthropods or, you know, stuff like that. But um, certainly that's the thing. The, just as the conversation was going, the thing that struck out to me is, okay, say you went to north of the dividing range in PNG and found a carpet, people, you know, given the Internet and what it is today, people would just say that we were faking it. So I didn't even know if it's worth it. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Right. But, you know. Right. Yeah. He said he was going to find it on that episode 533. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, using the words against us. All right. I guess let's get into the topic at hand. Uh, can pythons breed outside of a season? I don't know. What's your thought? Let's, let's start with you, William, since you were the one that sort of sparked this uh, idea. What, uh, what's your thoughts? I think it's... Uh I don't know. There's so many, I think there's just so many factors. It's just, it's just hard to pinpoint it on something. Is it, uh, like I was telling you guys earlier was I had such a crappy winter. I had no, I I'd have barely had any snow this year, hardly right. any. So, and I noticed whenever every, not everything, but a lot of stuff started breeding when I had a week or week, two weeks of rain when mm -hmm. the rain was really heavy. And that was, May, I think, when most people are quote on done with their breeding season, mm -hmm. I got hit with pretty decent rain and stuff started breeding. But here's the caveat to that the white lip so far was the only one that went into that group, as far as like a bunch of the stuff that was breeding. And I don't particularly hammer my females with food very heavy after they lay, I kind of give them a few meals and I, it sounds bad, but I kind of leave them a little lean. I don't like getting them plump again, if if you will. So okay. I keep them a little bit lean. But and I didn't honestly, I didn't plan on breeding her again. I didn't really didn't really plan on breeding her, but I start feeding her kind of along with her sisters because they're all in the same general area. So I was just I started feeding her a little bit heavy too. Because generally, if I'm going to breed it, I'm going to feed it. If I'm not going to breed it, then you kind of get on a essentially almost like a maintenance fed type of, you know, feeding where yeah. you're just not going to get fed that heavy, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, um, that's what I was doing. And then I just start feeding her heavier. And was it that I just hit the right amount of meals that she just decided, or well, not decided the follicles were just, you know, she had an adequate amount of weight that she, that was just the time. Cause she probably wouldn't have had enough weight by, I think she would have, when would she go? She probably ovulated last year around April, maybe mm -hmm. I would say. So yeah. So maybe it could have been that it's hard to say, you know, ball pythons. I could tell you, I mean, I, I really like that Vin Russo method when it comes to breeding where you, you don't really feed them much and then you just hammer them for maybe six giant meals and then that's it. 
and usually most of the time they go, it just makes it kind of just easier, honestly, where you don't have to worry about feeding every single because it, it's it's hard when you're a full time or not full time, but when you work a full time job and do snakes, like Ryan Young and them will tell you, like yeah, I feed small meals, but I feed real often. Well, I just don't have the luxury to do that. Separate out a bunch of animals and feed, you know, little meals more often. It's just easier to just give them larger meals, you know, more often or less. Well, not more often, but actually just give them bigger meals. Yeah. And that sort of speaks to the whole. Well, that speaks to a couple things come to mind when when you say that one, the adaptability of that of of pythons just in general right in yep. captivity or whatever um you could do small meals you could do big meals you know less often whatever you know blah, either way um and and it produces results <clears throat> um so is it the food is it the you know is it species specific uh you know i don't know i i just i i you know years ago rob and i had this thought the one time when we were talking on the phone and I was saying about how, like, to me, if there's, we just throw a number out, there's five triggers, you know, if you hit two of them, whether it be uh, temperature, humidity, uh, you know, uh, feeding, uh, light cycles, uh, it could be precipitation outside. Um, if you hit a couple of those or one of those in some cases, then you're probably going to have a success, you know, and, and that's sort of like, what leads me to think like, okay, so it can't be, it's, it's not a specific thing per se. It's not like you could feed, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's not like you're going to feed, oh, I'm feeding medium rats come, you know, it's sort of like when me and Owen talk about breeding, we sort of take the approach of the holiday type of thing and it's always seasonal because I don't know, carpet pythons seem to be seasonal, but I don't understand why they couldn't be if, even if it was just popwin carpets, like why would green trees breed all year long, but carpets won't? That just doesn't make sense to me. You, you, know? you know, this is I something interesting because I stalk a lot of people. I'm going to be honest. I would to try to get information. I just watch a lot of breeders and mm-hmm. I watch people who are particularly pretty successful with what they do. And if you look at the people who are successful, Australian stuff seems to be really odd, right? Australian right. stuff seems to do the best when you cycle them with more of a temperature food cycling than mm-hmm. Indonesian or animals closer to, or on the equator. I'll just mm-hmm. say on the equator, because if you look at it, Ryan Young, he's successful in oh, ball pythons, but he's particularly successful in Indonesian animals. And then you look at someone like uh, Nick Mutton, who's really successful with Australian stuff. And they do two pretty different things. Ryan isn't so much of a hard cooler. He's a, a cycle feeder. And then you got someone like Nick who is a hard cycler who hits them with pretty distinct temperature drop or fluctuations. And yeah. it's, you know, could that work? Well, obviously, you know, Nick still breeds Indonesian animals. Ryan still breeds Australian animals. But you notice that, you know, one's clearly better at one than the other. Rather, that's numbers that, you know, that could be that could also play a fluctuation. You know, who has sure. more of what? You know, but that's just something I've noticed. And, you know, um, you know, um, what was I going to, I felt like there was something else I was going to say with that, but I lost it. But yeah. That's as far as like just people I've noticed, like, you know, that's just, you know, and uh, something else too, I wanted to kind of debunk that. I remember I heard, I hear, 
a lot of people talk about it, but I don't see it being that true is the whole establishment of an animal. Like people talk about, Oh, you get a new, uh, say you get an adult female, you got to keep her for five years minimum for her to breed. Well, Ryan Young has debunked that for years. Some of those white lip pythons and stuff, he got that year and bred them, you know? So, and they're adult animals. So it kind of, and like the Sri Lankan python he bred last year, bred the same bred in July. So that's really off season for what Ryan's typically known to do. So what, like I said, just there's, it's not black and white, I guess, at the end of it. There seems seems to be a bit more going on than when we like to just put it in, like make it simplified or something. <laughs> yeah, like you're yeah. baking a cake, right? Right, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> You know, I think um, um, I could be wrong with this, but like I'm thinking as you're saying that, I'm thinking about Ryan Young and like, Rob, you may know this better than me, but like, doesn't he like, it seems like in the wintertime, he's just covered in snow. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, that was, that yeah, was another sure. thing. Yeah, That was another thing. So here, m- me and I don't, I can't speak on um, Rob because I'm not too familiar with uh Colorado, right? I'm not too familiar with that weather or how his is, but I know me and Eric and Owen, we're pretty similar. Like we we get cold winters, but we might also get some warm days thrown into that cold winter, you know. So, yeah. and I notice I I notice that same thing with um with uh, Ryan, and I, I would assume Nick would be pretty similar. You know, he's fairly close to Ryan, but they get they get snow all winter. They get rain in the fall and spring, and then they're dry during summer. So they seem much more consistent weather-wise than we do. Isn't there a mountain range, though, that separates Nick from Ryan, kind of? Is there? There might be. I'm not too familiar with those areas. I always remember him. Rob would probably know. Yeah, Nick's more of a desert. Despite being so close, the conditions are a little bit – I think it's like a – a rain shadow effect or whatever. So um, certainly they get that there, but I think his is probably drier than Ryan's stuff. Okay. Okay. And that's why I was thinking like, you know, I think I, I believe one of my beliefs has always been that the um, weather outside affects breeding reptiles more than people think. I think that people think that it's like I have a controlled room and I'm keeping this, but I think those pressure drops, shit, man, just how do we even know? Like you think about what it smells like when it rains, you, you know what it, it has a different smell in the air. What if that somehow affects them? What if, you know, I don't know. I know that's kind of a crazy thought, but it just got me thinking about like, I think I was talking to Keith about this and we were talking about iridescence on snakes. And although to us, it may look um, like they're standing out, let's say, and it's like, how is that camouflage or whatever? But then when you look at what their predator would be and they don't, they're not able to see that, then basically the animal becomes invisible. Like an example would be, um, I, I, I saw on a show, they were talking about tigers and yep. the one type of deer that uh, the tiger hunts all the time, that animal cannot see orange, the color orange, which basically means that the tiger with the stripes, I mean, now it makes sense. It just disappears into the, you know, right. that they, they won't see it, you know. So I don't know. 
what do you think about that, Rob? That's kind of uh, one of those questions that Rob would be telling me a couple of days from now. No, that's wrong. <laughs> no, I think that's super fascinating um, yeah. and does speak to, right, the even so it raises the, well, it does a couple of things, right? The first to me is it brings up the issue of our own perspective and how that clouds stuff, right, so that we're always um, – unintentionally viewing things through our perspective where we'd look at that and say, like, how do they not notice this big orange tiger? Or even in the conversation that just happened um, on Venom Exchange Radio where they're talking about the cookies and cream lutosis on orange sand and what does that look like? It's kind of the same deal, right? Not necessarily from a specific to orange context, but same idea where it's like to us that seems super noticeable, but obviously it's conveying some advantage to them. The interesting bit is, okay, well, if they're not seeing orange, if it was entirely orange without the stripes, would they then notice the absence of anything, right, in a way that the stripe pattern then breaks it up so that it doesn't seem as, um, doesn't make as little sense or is be as noticeable by its absence. That's kind of what I think with the tiger thing, where if they actually were then unicolor orange, it actually might be noticeable in terms of the absence of anything, right? It's yeah. almost like a shadow. Right, right. Right. Well, I think yeah, it's like, like with zebras, the stripes break up the pattern. It makes it harder to distinguish a single body when you have all these stripes, kind of like with zebras. Why zebras are black and white. It's the break up that distinguishing one individual. So that's I wonder if it's the same with tigers and tall, you know, hiding in tall grass and everything. It helps break up that illusion of a body there and kind of oh, yeah. just drowns sure. it out. That's why that's why I'm I'm assuming I'm sure the I'm sure there was a basal version of a tiger that was patternless you know just a standard spotted animal because the closest living relative to tigers is the snow leopard so and that's clearly i mean you would have never have thought that so clearly there was a dramatic change from you know there to where they are now so (laughs) yeah wow i didn't know that i didn't know that wow that's Uh, interesting no shit um Maybe you, because you guys are more um, into uh, the ball python history, if you will. But like, when did it become? Like, when did breeders start to breed them year round? Like, what? Because I, I remember, I remember listening to Reptile Radio back in the day, and it was always like, you know, oh, it's November, we're we're cooling down, and you know, they sort of followed the similar python breeding uh, strategy, if you will, um, and then it just seemed that somewhere changed was it a gradual thing do do you even know i I don't i I think i think it was a mixture of things i think it was a little bit of laziness and a little bit of uh some people did i remember tim bailey talking about it he said he started to see different you know just girls spacing out more and more but you know i think that's when you know cycle feeding comes in if you're feeding weekly or bi-weekly you're not giving that animal any rest, you know, even biweekly, you know, as soon as its organs recover, you know, unless you're giving it a small meal, you're not really giving it a a fluctuation of food, you know, either feast and famine like I do with my ball pythons and a few old school people still do with their ball pythons. So, you know, I know people who breed them like boas where they feed them once a month and they get clutches from them. They just feed them one big meal a month. And then that, uh-huh. that's all they do for their ball pythons. So, you know, wow. I don't really believe that domestication. I, you know, I hear Nick talk about it, but I, it's domestication is more complicated than 
our measly 10 or 15 generations of, yeah. you know, at best, you know, in saying that's domesticated. And, and even domestication and reptiles, I think, might need to be coined differently than, say, a mammal's domesticated. Maybe. It probably depends on the ant- reptile, too. You know, if you were to domesticate crocodilians, which are closer to birds, you know, that might be a little different. But I don't see a snake quite fitting that same category of domestication. You're not going to do a Russian fox experiment with them and, you know, (laughs) get curly tailed pythons or anything like that. So I don't I don't necessarily think that's what we have going on right now. All right. Sorry. No, that's all good. Yeah. Yeah, no, agreed. I think um, the other, I totally agree with that stuff. I would think the two biggest, well, the biggest driver was probably a lot of those ball python folks getting ultrasounds so that they were yep. able to actually see inside the snakes and then really watch their development. If you go back to, um, you know, back the time you're talking about, 2008, 2009, um, with Reptile Radio, you remember that, like, pied females notoriously, quote, bred at a different time um, yeah. and that it was always an issue with producing them. Um, so then that kind of that observation aligned with them, you know, uh, more people putting ultrasounds on animals consistently. And I'm sure that was really the big driver is, you know, seeing inside, seeing under the hood and being able to really clearly see across a large sample you know, oh, these actually are, are growing follicles at different times, even with the same general input beyond, obviously, individual willingness to feed. Yeah. I tend to think, too, probably the morphs affected that as well, right? You know, I remember, like, uh, you know, when when it was uh, meant something to have the world's first of something. You know what I mean? Like, that whole 20, what was that, 24, like, I don't know, 2012, 2015, where it was like, oh, world's first, world's first, you know, and it was, I, I, I would think that the, the, the race to have that, um, you know, when it, when it was oh, really no me- meaning something. Yeah, I mean, part of that, that same thing, right, would be if in like that same instance, if they had a singular male that they wanted to use across multiple females, You'd actually be better situated if, like, say you had a rack of females, if they were not all on exactly the same cycle, right? So that if their um, follicular development was actually staggered a week or two weeks so that the male could be in there at the optimal time for each, which you can't do. I mean, you could toss them all together, but even then, uh, that singular male probably isn't at his peak relative to all of them if they're all peaking at the same time, whereas if they're actually staggered, then you might actually be able to introduce them and have successful copulation at the time, you know, kind of at that optimal time. So maybe even within their own collections, it was beneficial to not have them all going at once, and that might spread the season out kind of naturally. So between all this stuff, I think that's how they wound up, you know, seeing that. It's not even, I don't think, each individual animal is maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, when we talk about it saying, oh, they can breed all year round, that's on a collection level or a, yeah. a herpetoculture-wide level, um, more so than it is necessarily a specific animal. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's a good point, Rob. To make that clarification, you know, because when we say that, it, it it implies that you can just breed your ball python at any point in the year 
which possibly you could. I don't know. You know, maybe certain females go at certain times for certain reasons or whatever. Is it possible that different that individual pythons have different triggers? I don't know what you guys think um, of that. Yeah, I would. I would think so. Certainly. I mean, we see that right where there are. And I, I agree with you, William, relative to the whole kind of domestication bit. I think there's some of yes and some of no, and that there's a lot of oversimplification to say that that's the reason this is happening. I tend to think it's more our own inputs and how we're applying it and that different stuff. At the same time, right, some hatchlings feed better than others, and, you know, so they, they're plenty willing to show us that they have their own individual traits or tendencies. And so, yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think it's universal that, oh, they'll all be amenable to this or not. Some are going to be way more amenable than others. Yeah. I think that probably it's, it's I mean, if you're a breeder, right, it's probably good for incubator space. It's probably good for having, you know, uh, you know, available offspring throughout the, throughout the year be, if you're yeah, doing. All, yeah, all the different things. Yeah, sure. yeah, a lot of. Yeah, I think, I, uh, I think it's workload too, man, because you imagine having 200 clutches in two months, three months, <laughs> and just all that hatching out, that'd be hell. Dude, I struggled with with fifteen. Oh, man. oh I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, that would blow my brains out. That would be horrible. Yeah, I, uh, but, uh, or even I, all the right size rodents, you know. And then everything—if yeah. you did it all simultaneously, or if it all happened simultaneously—then you need the same size all the time, to the extent that they all get started. And you know, obviously they grow differently, and et cetera. But if all—if everything was all on the same schedule, that's only harder. You're logistically right, everything is harder. Right. Oh, yeah. And so that kind of leads me on another topic. When you were talking about growth rate, you know, how about size? I've noticed, you know, the best breeding pythons are the smallest ones as far as consistency and, well, just reliable reliability to breed. I was listening to – or there was a guy in Canada who bred his – he's breeding Papuan pythons. And he got a successful clutch, and he goes, and this is my smallest female I didn't think was going to go, you know. And it mm. kind of made me wonder, and even with my ball pythons, you know, I notice my smaller ones will breed more consistently. I think that has to do more with calorie intake. You don't need as much food than an animal that is bigger. Because if you look at these retake breeders, clearly you can breed gigantic snakes, it just how much food are you going to put into them? I notice a lot of people in scrubs, they seem to be a lot more, we'll have a big scrub, but I'm afraid to feed it more because I don't want it bigger, you know, but you're just not giving it enough calories, I think, for it to go. Because I think you could still breed some of these bigger pythons. I just, I've noticed when it comes to non-popular um, species, I guess, like when you're talking... Retic people will breed gigantic retics. Ball python people will breed gigantic ball pythons, relatively speaking. And um, I think that's really it. I, blood python, I wouldn't be surprised if there's people that breed gigantic blood pythons. I'm just not in that clique to know that. But I notice a lot of, like, particularly with scrub people, people who have, if their scrubs are big, they want to feed them like, you know, if it's a nine-foot scrub, ten-foot scrub, they still want to feed it like they might feed their six-foot scrub, and their six-foot scrub will breed for them, but their nine-foot scrub won't. And I think yeah. that might, you know, we always say we broke the animal then. Now, I'm not saying you can't break an animal like if it's fat. 
Now, there is a difference between a Jay Brewer retake and a Wild <laughs> Giant retake, right? right? So, and I think the same can be implied to a lot of other, you know, like scrub pythons. You know, I, it's not that I don't think those scrubs can breed. I just think the mindset of a lot of people who have those scrubs is, well, I'm going to still feed it kind of like I would feed my six foot scrub, you know, and they just, you're not going to, you, well, you, it's not to say you can't, but you're probably less likely to get a female to go off of that kind of regimen than if you were to give her bigger meals, you know, than say you would the six foot one, because I've seen it with ball pythons too. My, like I said, my biggest sample size is probably going to be the ball pythons when I compare stuff, but I have a ball python who, she just barely eats. She just she doesn't have to eat very many meals for her to go, and she always mm-hmm. stays real lean. She seems to be an exception to that rule. Like, all right, just because she's small, she still doesn't eat that much compared to other smaller ball pythons I have. But she still lays. She just lays giant small clutches. You know, like two giant eggs or something like that. So, what? That that. Uh, go ahead, Rob. I see you uh, on mute. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that makes a ton of sense, right? I mean, especially if we're talking about things that are in, they're just big, but they're in good body condition, right? Because I think a lot of the conversation around, you know, fat uh, females in particularly, in particular not breeding well, is maybe that the fat bodies are inhibiting the growth of the um, follicles, right? So that they can't actually right. reach the, they can't mature, you know, and then be released appropriately because of the fat bodies in, on the inside. But I'm totally with you, right? That if you just have something larger, uh, necessarily to cause that spike, that kind of that spike feed that you're talking about, um, that's going to have to be bigger items on a larger snake for sure. And obviously there's practical considerations with that, both right. in terms of cost and availability and all that stuff for sure. Right. And just do I want to be do I want to be engaging in the active feed right. that thing the thing that's equivalently yeah. large? Right? Yeah, I don't. That's the yeah, same thing with me. I don't want to have to deal with a scrub python that's you know ten foot long or even a retic for that matter that's twenty or eighteen foot long. You know, I've had to deal with big retics that were that bad, and it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. It's not yeah. fun, man. No. Yeah. Um. That that's well. I have a couple of thoughts that I just wrote down, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna throw this one out there. I heard, I want to say it was on Project Terpticulture that uh, that I just listened to, and they were talking about um, wild animals versus captive animals, and sort of how they're different, and they don't necessarily uh, look at it as being the same type of, of, of thing. Right. You know, so like meaning that, um, in the wild they're, they're, they, they would eat, they would only eat X, you know, a couple times a year, let's say, or whatever. Um, and, and they're going to be thinner and they're going to be smaller. Where in captivity, you can sort of, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's, it's, you know, uh, you want to feed that animal, not, not overfeed it, but feed it enough to where she can, she feels confident enough to sort of take that extra, uh, nutrition and sort of apply it to producing eggs. Um, so I don't know what your guys thoughts on that is as far as, um, you know, because I think of like all of the wild pythons that we've seen have all been, I think that maybe maybe the ones that on our last trip, the Southeast Queensland sort of reminded me of something you would see in captivity. Um, 
and maybe that's because it's it's more populated in that area. Therefore, there's more available food, so they're eating on a more consistent basis than, say, if they lived out in the Northern Territory in the middle of nowhere where there's nobody around, and it's basically, um, you know, you're on your own. I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that, Rob? Because you were you were there, you see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. I, I think there's maybe something to that. The thing that always jumps to my mind in this conversation, right, is um, in Ben's study, associate Ben Morrill's study associated with the Sutherland data. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was the principle of context that we talked about this, and then I know Justin has brought it up, and is whereas on the sort of burst spike of large items that William's talking about that I think makes a ton of sense. If you're just consistently feeding a lot, then um, there was actually, you know, there's a suggestion that animals will just take the time, rather than reproducing that season, utilize that resource to get larger so that when they do ultimately reproduce, they'll have more, a larger clutch, right? So that actually there is possibly, or at least there, it engages the question of whether if you consistently fed sort of a mid-tier item, that you'll have them in a growth mindset so that when they eventually do come to reproduce, they'll exceed, you know, they'll have a larger capacity when they do it, but that you could actually hurt your success by doing that. And I don't remember what the ultimate result was, but I know that that was one of the questions that Ben had engaged when he had looked at that. Yeah, I remember him talking about turkeys, and uh, uh, for some reason, maybe this was what me and you were talking, Rob. That, right, with the feeder, was talking and about that, the, right? An it's ideal like specific, amount. yeah. It's right. like very. You don't want to feed them too much because then their uh, fecundity would go down, and you don't want to feed them too little because then you know it wouldn't. It, it, they wouldn't have and enough to reproduce. I don't remember if he found that in the data or not, but certainly it was a question, and I, I it is yeah. a. I think it's a valid question to look at. Um, and it's something that's avoided, right, by the approach, William, that you're taking. Yeah. Uh, How so? What so the. Oh, oh, go ahead. No, go I would say go ahead because I, I'm so is he, so is a study that had bigger meals were causing them to possibly hold off uh, follicular development. No, it's not bigger meals. It's if they were like getting oh. access to food consistently. So that not, that's what I'm saying. So okay. if you're just burst feeding on big items, it's not creating that impetus. Whereas if you're like, yeah, so if what you're doing where you're either re- like in a reduced state or fasting entirely, and then you're hitting that with burst, that that is sort of the, the trigger item. Whereas if you just fed them a, um, something that's maybe two thirds that size, but you did it consistently throughout the year, you're basically, you're also probably promoting fat bodies. Uh, that are going to inhibit follicular growth. But um, if you're doing that, that they might see that as an opportunity. Well, I just should grow based on this consistent availability of food rather than actually reproduce. So it won't be that same stimulus like what, what you're seeing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Like I said, this is it, it's such a complicated answer for that question because it's just that like i mean if they use it towards growth it doesn't it not it doesn't always necessarily mean larger clutches because i've had some pretty small girls lay some pretty like big clutches but just really small eggs so i it's like their body can it's like it learns to cope with whatever it's going to do whether it's laying larger clutches just smaller eggs or big like i said that small female who will lay 
two gigantic eggs, you know, but stays relatively uh, lean most of the year, you know. It's, I don't know. I think it's, it's hard to say. I just, I think, there, like I said, there's just, there's so much, I think there's more to it. Like, as far as, like, ball python people feed it, I still, in my mind, I think that's why ball python people get such a, such a, like, a drawn-out season because they generally don't, they just don't, they, I think they just give their animals such an optimal surroundings as far as always have heat, always have food, so they kind of can almost at their own luxury go whenever they feel fit. Rather, it's male introduction, um, yeah, just male introduction or something. But when you force them to have to do something, then it's kind of like, I guess more of a, I don't want to say do or die, but it's kind of, you do or don't, I guess, more than anything, you know. If I force them to eat, you know, I say force them, but if I, I guess, uh, get them to eat larger meals, you know, it just... And they have, do they still get the same calorie intake as someone who does feed, you know, weekly, biweekly, except I'm just doing it in a shorter period of time, you know, that I wouldn't know either. It's not, I don't really know the fat content of a large or jumbo rat compared to a small rat, other than I'm sure it does have a high, higher fat content than say a small rat would or, because now I think the whole notion in the ball python community now is feed weans the smalls to decent sized adult females and just feed them bi-weekly or something like that is what I hear a lot of them talk about now is the bi-weekly feeding. Why did that change? What was the reason behind that? Me, I think it sounds like even in my case, I think it's a rodent availability. Mm. You know, it's a, it's man, it's a pain in the ass to find people who want to do that at any, yeah. any size, you know? So I think some of them were kind of just forced into doing it. You know, well, the people who had to buy rodents, at least anyways, you know, the people who the people who breed their own still typically feed weekly or so, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, don't don't ball python breeders in general have a more uh, steady approach to feeding, more of a weekly type of schedule? Um, I think it's very, it's very until they factory breed, I guess. built. Yeah, yeah, I think it's very factory built. Like it's meant to be a system, you know. Because right. let's face it, when it comes to business, there aren't many reptile people as business savvy as ball python people. So they 100%. learn to just <laughs> they learn to just utilize and you know systematize everything. You know, why would I bother cooling anything if I can just keep things heated year round and just use my ultrasound to, you know, breathe it rather than relying on more of a traditional season? You know, like. Most of, well, not most, but some people do. So I guess the question is, is that if you are taking temperature out of the equation uh, of the cosmic octopus, let's say, and you're taking the feeding part out of it to where you're cycling in a certain extent, at that point, really, I would be curious to see, to you know, and again, not really being in the ball python world, is it affected by weather? Is it is it affected by pressure fluctuations um you know could it be uh, that that's what they're sort of honed in on and why you would get them you know at various times of the year or 
Um, and here's another question I have for you guys to find out what your thoughts are, because I guess, William, maybe this will be debunked by your your female, but like, isn't it thought that, that once they breed at a certain you know, I hear, and, and this could just be that I hear this a lot, so it's it sort of sticks in my head. It's like uh, a female will go in March, right? She lays a clutch in March, and then it seems like every March, if you breed her, then she sort of goes in that time frame. Is that your experience with ball pythons? Uh, you know, that's an interesting topic. You know, I I wonder if it's more of a Something I've heard ball python people talk about, I've even heard Ryan talk about this too, is your female will build follicles periodically throughout the year. Like she might, three years, to start building, and if nothing happens, they go back down again. And then they might start building again, then go every three, I, I want to say it was three or six months I heard, like, oh, if she reabsorbed, try her again in three or six months. I can't remember exactly what they were, or what they were saying time frame wise, but... And it, I guess it makes sense. I don't know if it's an eternal clock thing. I don't – that's hard to say. I don't know if this is like a trifecta. If they're, you know, another thing too is I think they're more flexible than we realize because if you've been around the earth – if you've been around on earth for 60 to 100 million years, you know, you're probably pretty adaptable and flexible in what you do because if you were stuck in one way, you probably didn't make it, you know, to a certain – era before you know your species that have died out so i think they're just i think it's pythons are more flexible than we realize and it's you know we're just we're stuck in a way or a certain way some people are you know some people i think they know it it's just some people are just it's just easier like i'm not against like i don't want to make it sound like i'm against cycle or uh you know cycles and stuff because i i honestly oh like the more i like the more (laughs) predictable you know way if i can yeah i think it just it just it you know the the thing that fascinates me with this topic is just how little we know about what really is going on you know to me that's sort of like the mystique behind the topic if you will it's 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 like one of those things where i i I really find it interesting to try to fit i mean you know for me and probably for you too william it's it's like um I'm fascinated by these snakes and this group of snakes, you know, and, and to me, I'm like trying to understand everything about them. Having worked with all these different species. I used to think that, you know, oh, you know, it's a Python, a Python's a Python. It's just, you know, oh, it's here, it's from here, but it's still going to do Python things. And it's from there. Oh man, I couldn't be farther from the truth of, of how wrong I was with that. And, um, you know, that made me think about the, uh, years to breed, thing that you were saying and um i think with i think why ryan's able to do that is because he probably understands uh the you know steps to take to to i think that has to do more with stress than it has to do with um you know anything else right At, at least my experience with scrubs and stuff like that and rob probably has the same with helma harris and you know and like in dealing with that animal in particular um, you know, trying to figure out how not to stress it out. Like, how, how do I keep this animal, you know, um, in a way that that's that's going to uh, to not stress it out? I remember going to uh, Dave Mean's place and like checking out his stuff and like all of his ca- he had these huge cages, but 
they all had pegboard on on the front of them and i was like well that sucks <laughs> you know like i can't see right. anything you know but the whole purpose of it was that you know um you sort of hid the female i think of uh Oh, what was his last name? His name was Chris. He was Mystic Reptiles, and he bred retics, white lips, and ring pythons, I think, in Florida. I don't know if he still does it or not, but he had Eugene Bissett's old cages, and one of the things that he had was, like, half of the cage was, like, you couldn't see it, you know? So the snake could be in the back half of the cage and, you know... That's so whatever. dangerous with retics. I couldn't even imagine <laughs> doing that with a retic, not knowing and where it's come out of. And retics, too. Oh, that'd be horrendous. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But, uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah. Go ahead. It it that's an interesting topic too. It's like, does moving them really stress them out? Uh, who like I've said, Ryan breeds animals. Like I mean, he's bred a handful of animals that he would get that year and breed them within under twelve months of having them. So that seems like to me it debunks it. But here's the caveat to that, and this is why I think it's more. It's not. It's not black and white like we like to think because then there was that Daniel Natouche thing where he kept trying to relocate that scrub python and it would keep coming back, keep coming back. And then eventually it starved to death because it just it couldn't acclimate to a different climate. It wanted to go back to the one it was more familiar with. So it kind of I it might be an individual base, you know, just if it's, you know, individuals comfortable in the spot and, you know, it doesn't handle moving it, it. might end up doing more bad than good to it. And then there's some animals that are, you know, seem to be more adapted to it, you know, cause right. I move my ball pythons. Like I group read ball pythons. So they're, I mean, they jump around each other's, t- you know, tubs, like, you know, just like they're having group parties or something. I mean, they're just, <laughs> I mean, they're, I, I'll throw a group of them and it's not, they're in a new environment, but it's, you know, I mean, it's not drastically different, but it's, you know, it's not like they went to a whole different place or anything like that, you know, but it's, you know, it's like I said, I just don't think it's, it's as simple as we'd like to think. Like, I'm not like, I don't buy that whole, well, it's not that I don't think it doesn't have any kind of truth to it, but that whole, you got to keep it and it has to be comfortable for so long. You know, I don't, I just not sure, just not too sure on that. You know, rather, and you know, another thing that could uh, could uh, be a uh, play a role in it is environment too. Like, um, sure, Nick, like Ryan, for instance. Like I've said, he st- he keeps a pretty stable temperature. He's not like you know, being an ambient guy. He doesn't do crazy stuff. But say Nick, who does a lot drastic temperatures, would that just be too much for the animal and just cause it to stress out too much? Maybe who knows? I Possibly. I think it could be the in the you know it could be the animal it could be the environment you're trying to put it in, you know. Yeah, I just think of like I don't know. I think and again, this goes back to what I was saying just a minute ago. It's just about understanding, you know, pythons and how they work and individual species of pythons and how they work and and what are the little uh, you know minute details but that go from species to species that maybe um are going to make them feel more comfortable or or adapt quicker or you know get into that thing and i think that really comes from just paying attention to your snakes and i would imagine that ryan breeding so many different species just has a probably to him i would imagine it's not even 
it's probably not even like he's not even thinking about it, but it's more of an intuition, if you will. You know, um, I would say that Rob probably has the same thing. You know, he just has a, a, a an ability to sort of look right. at a snake and, and sort of, you know, compute in a way <laughs> what's going on. Right. You know, I don't know. Speak to that, Rob. <laughs> Yeah, what I was thinking, you know, as this conversation uh, or within this, you know, the conversation on this topic is I think Ryan's ability to do that with the animals that he's getting reflects two things, right? I do think it is the stress or lack thereof in his setup, and probably that temperature consistency is probably helpful to that, right? And especially in terms of making them be amenable to going more quickly. But also I think that's it, Eric, is that, it's really going to be reflective of the fact that he's able to look at it and perceive what's happening. I don't know whether Ryan has an ultrasound or not, but certainly no, he's experienced to be able to look at it, you know, and judge it even with even in its absence to be able to look at it critically and, and have a sense for it. And I think maybe that's something that uh, is a less perceived to be less valuable now in the age of ultrasounds, but uh, still something, you know, still something important. And I'm sure that, uh, he's really utilizing that so he can look at him and say, okay, well, it is ready and uh, make a good judgment call and operate off that. I, I could tell you, Ryan doesn't use an ultrasound. I've heard him belittle people who use them. Like, <laughs> he, he, he let them ha- I've never seen someone. It was, it was embarrassing. Right, let me just leave it at that. It was pretty embarrassing to watch him just tear them a new one on using an ultrasound. So I can, I can, unless he had a, religious change or something or experience with one. I, I don't think he uses one. I think he's still old fashioned. Just look at the animal type of deal. Yeah. It would have surprised me that honestly, if you had said yes, I would, it would have surprised me. (laughs) Right. Right. Didn't seem to fit. So I I guess I'm also not Uh, surprised that uh, he would have a, an extreme view on that. That that also doesn't surprise me. So no. Okay. Good. All all aligned. (laughs) I mean, I think of like over the recent years recently, right? I think when it comes to, and again, this is just an overall uh, uh, observation that I have thought about is that, you know, uh, I think that sometimes probably maybe, uh, well, I'll, I'll just speak to carpets, right? Like, it's sort of like we have this way, it's it works, we're sort of just sticking with this way and there's no push forward to sort of learn uh, more about the topic, right? And, 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 and pushing the boundaries and experimenting. Can you breed a carpet outside of, you know, does it need the cool down? Does it not need the cool down? You know, some people will say uh, uh, that you don't. Some people will say that you do. I think Nick is like, you have to drop carpets, you know, in order, like maybe they'll breed, but, and, and this is maybe a part of his thinking, right? Because he's doing it as a living, right? So his, his, his way of doing it is going to like he has to get those snakes to breed so he's not taking any chances in doing it therefore he's going to make sure that he's dropping those temperatures to ensure that he's going to get x amount of clutches in the season whereas you know if you don't do that you, maybe you have a 50-50 or 60-40 or you know whatever it would be whatever the the odds would be of you being successful with that or not. So maybe it's more of that, uh, you know, again, sort of what you said earlier, like when you're doing a business, you sort of need that regimen of like how it goes. Um, recently we, we've, we found out that, you know, to breed scrub pythons successfully, having a second male comes into play. Whereas 
for years. I think that, I don't know, why, why wasn't that thought of earlier? There's plenty of species of snakes where, you know, um, other males are, are, you know, are needed in order to be successful. Like, why wasn't that thought about with pythons? So it makes me think, like, what else are we not thinking about when it comes to those type of things? Because we're sort of stuck in our, in our ways, if you will. I don't know. You have any thoughts on that? So I got it. Well, I got some questions. You brought that up. I have a few questions for both of you because I don't know the answer. Is uh, interesting you said say that. Is it same? Is that the the same with bull and I? Has people? I heard there's a guy breeding them readily, and he said something about having multiple males. He cycles. I, I this is just what I heard. I don't, and I'm trying to figure out who this guy is. He, you know. <laughs> I hear. I right. well, so I know. I heard. Okay. Well, I, I I know his name and all that. I see him on Morph Market, but this is the this is the caveat, right? So the guy I hear this guy lives in Florida, but when I checked, I looked at his Morph Market. He said he's in Kansas City, Missouri. So by me, and I'm like, how the fuck have I never heard of someone in Missouri breeding Bolins pythons? I go, I understand there's closet uh, closet breeders out there and all, but. I find it really hard that I've never heard of someone, you know, that, you know, has bred them at least once that would live. In, so I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? And then I, I heard, uh, I heard some of you guys on the chat talking about it. Cause apparently he had like, for, so I thought he only had two or three years of success, but I thought someone said he had six years or something. I don't know. Like I said, this, I, this is what I thought I heard in the chat. I'm, I'm a little clueless here. I was hoping maybe, one of you two guys can fill me in because you guys talk to uh, the bull and uh, people. <laughs> yeah, bull and I people more than I do. Yeah, Keith and all them who probably know um, more. I think it, I think that's well. I think that that's been a thought for sure. I think that there's probably not a lot of people that are able to do it because of the cost, right? Jesus Christ, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. That that makes me have a whole different type of question, and me and Rob have talked about this a lot, a lot over the years. It's just like I, I I get the idea of the price behind them. I understand that, um, but at the same time, I don't because if you're really trying to establish a species like that in captivity, wouldn't you want the price to be? You know what I mean? Like if it was really about like let's get this animal in captivity. And it's not about a status symbol. It's not about being the, the person that did it. It's not about any of that stuff. Then you wouldn't really care about the, you know. And I mean, what are they going for? Like twenty four thousand dollars for a pair? Oh, it was. That's just. Was there's like, no way you, you're you're spending what two hundred thousand dollars in order to secure a group. I mean, right. how many people can really do that? And are the people that are <laughs> yeah, and are the oh, people that are able to do that? Uh, are, are, do they have the species' best interest at heart? Would be my question. As yeah, it is, that, it's not a money. Bull and python is by far the most frustrating species out there, man. It drives me nuts. Well, it's that and the. It's either Boland's pythons or people always want a big ass reptile, like monitor lizards. They always want the biggest one. They never want the smallest one, yeah. which I think are cooler. Yes. But yeah, we want the biggest animal we can get. And the Boland's python, it's, oh, it's a hard to breed snake that's really expensive. And, and it, it, it really is pretty. So it's not that it's not an ugly animal or it's an oh, ugly 100%. animal or anything. But yeah. it's just, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. But I, I, there's, you know, the, 
a lot of people who tell you they're not in for the money, you know, when they tell you that, and then when a lot of money is presented to them, you know, it's, it's hard to, a lot of people, they, that's the reason why a lot of people got screwed over in ball Python projects too, is because it's like, you know, either prove to see if this animal is viable, you know, make sure it, both sides can, you know, why people got screwed on the scaleless stuff, why people got screwed on the, the desert. desert stuff and right. stuff like that is, if it was worked thoroughly, like the way Nick or someone would do it, you know, but Nick also asked more reasonable prices for his morph stuff. I, this is getting into a whole market thing and shit yeah. now. It's a, I don't mean for it to get too far off. But no, yeah, no, it's, no. It's, it's a frustrating, it's certainly very frustrating. And I don't, yeah, if you truly enjoyed a species, why wouldn't you work on trying to establish them with Keith, with Ari, or am I screwing his name up? Uh, is it Aries or um, Ari? down in Texas? Ari, sorry. Yeah, yeah Ari, yeah. Sorry. But Ari, and then I, there has to be other Bolins guys out there I just can't think of. But they're, you know, rather than giving it to, I don't know, say a ball python breeder who might have the funds, but wants to breed a Bolins like he would breed his ball pythons, you know, or something like that. And it's just, I don't I don't get that either. I, it's, it's, yeah, I remember well, it's an old saying that, Nick used to say is, you know, it's, you know, people, it's always the one who's check clears, it seems, more than who's right for this animal, you know? Yeah, because if you look at, even if you look at Keith, Ari, uh, you know, um, Frederick, or, or any any of the people that have, have been successful with the species that, that, that pop into my head, um, but, like, even those guys, right? I, oh, I can't did, think of anybody that's more obsessed with trying to figure out Bolin's pythons than Keith, but he's not oh, going to yeah. be able to like throw $200,000 down into, you know, you know what I'm saying? Right. So then therefore what, uh, what's his advantage? Like, is he going to get a clutch once in a while? Like if it's really has to do with that multiple male, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just think that like, what do you do? You know, what, uh, that, does Mark Mark uh, uh, Spataro, Spataro, does he still breed Bolins? Didn't he get a clutch? This I think year? he did. I think he did. I this didn't year, even know yeah. he kept snakes. I was like, holy <laughs> shit, you still keep snakes? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's crazy how many people it's like. It's nothing against. I was just like, I didn't even know you guys still kept snakes. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're just so quiet. But, you know, I get it, though. I, I With some of the BS you got to deal with, with social media, man, it's like. <sighs> I was like, you know, I'd rather I'd rather be one of these guys, just kind of, just not post anything. Well, shit, I barely post things now. I just, I yeah. just don't care. I don't, I, I, I don't need that celebrity status. I don't need that blue check mark now near my name or whatever it is. You got to get to be a star. Yeah, if it wasn't for the podcast, I wouldn't be on social media like at probably at all. Like you know, well, you change a lot. You, 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 you change a lot of people's lives. So it's a good thing you did it. You know, you got me through high school. You got me through high school and college. So, oh, okay. I cool. can, I, yeah. Well, reptile radio decided, Oh fuck it. I can't do this no more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was pretty pissed at that too. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's I, Rob, you have any thoughts on the Bowens, uh, thought, you know, thing or. Sure. Yeah, I know. So the last uh, season that Keith was trying, he he definitely, at my insistence, did put both males together at the same time with the female because I am a big, fundamentally, I just think in the wild, right, and we've certainly seen this borne out 
that it's not an exclusive one-to-one relationship so that I think, while I appreciate the ideology of Nick's lineage charts and all that stuff, and I know, William, that, you know, I know Eric's heard way, way more than he needs to, and way more than a lifetime's worth on that, and I, William, it sounds like you have too, but I get that, and it looks cool, but I do think we have, we wind up with a lot less snakes to worry about the lineage of if we're obsessive that it has to be this male and this female. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder oftentimes too, right? Here's another thing that I think really didn't, I didn't even think about until, you know, Owen really started diving down the white lip uh, hole a long time ago. Um, but, um, you know, that certain snakes can be very mate selective. Like certain species of pythons are just mate selective, you know, and that. No doubt. Yeah. yeah. Or, like, I know in the conversation that I had seen, right, where it's, you know, I was seeing it in Solomon Island tree boas, mm-hmm. and I put five males in with one female and the first male like literally four of them just chilled out and the first one went trying to induce sort of a a receptive response and by the time she was starting to show interest he was wore out and guess what the the next one and again now there's still four they're sitting there the next one went and actually locked up right and so then all four of them are still sitting there, and then that one gets off. Those are a little bit different, right? They don't the males in that species don't combat, given their um, the population that they live in being insular like that. It wouldn't suit them well to be super combative. But mm-hmm. that being said, you know, so that's not necessarily saying a carpet will do that or that they'll fire one fire up one another. But if you're talking about something that clearly breeds communally in the wild, you're actually it is a huge deal to be able to put in a whole host of them together at once, I saw it right there, that if I just had that one, there would have been no lockup that day, because he was wore out just from trying to get to that point. And I know bows Mm -hmm. are a lot more of a process, a workup, than a lot of pythons are, but Mm -hmm. it was super instructive to me, and I definitely immediately reached out to Keith and said, yeah, put them both in there. He had one of them bite the other one, right, pretty dramatically. Um, So clearly they're, at best, in between. But... uh, yeah, so that being said, you know, I it, it, that happened and he separated them. I and I understand why, right? And the price point is is maybe part of that as opposed to say, well, let's let's just go a little longer. Let's see where he's going with this. Um, let's roll that dice. What actually happens. <laughs> yeah, you know. And so to your to your point on the price point thing, I yeah, I thought everything you both said made a ton of sense there. To me, obvious <laughs> that price has nothing thing to do with them becoming more available. In fact, it's probably the opposite. The fact that it is exclusionary and that, you know, actually them not being reproduced, it only increases the value to that community. So, yeah, I totally get it. You know, it's, it is exclusionary. There's no arguing that. Yeah. And it just brings in all the wrong people to that species, too, because I see a lot of people who are in the Bolin's pythons are wanting to get Bolin's pythons that probably shouldn't get Bolin's pythons. But it is what it is. I mean, I guess until we can breed Boland's pythons and change the narrative, it'll be like that. Or yeah. I guess if no one buys them and he's stuck with however many he had and he's like, you know, Boland's are cool, but fucking 50 of them kind of suck ass. So maybe I'll just start selling them at a reasonable price, but right. I don't know. We'll see. I may, I can I can only imagine how so many Boland's pythons could be in your room. That sounds, sounds like it could be kind of a pain. 
Uh, yeah, I would think that, uh, you know, um, Ryan, I, I've heard Ryan say uh, multiple times that, you know, that he sort of has a, a, an approach that he would have if he had them. And I wonder if he would be six. I, I would assume I would have to assume that he probably at some point would be successful with them since he's been pretty successful with the other Indonesian species of pythons. Um, but, you know, uh, is it the reason that he's not into it is is maybe be because of of the price and knowing that if you have to have multiple males it's kind of a you know yeah something that i think want to i think that and was selling them and all that kind of stuff you know i think that was the case i mean you know same thing with nick and ryan when they talk about you know the fucking prices on these things are ridiculous <laughs> yeah and not just them they're talking about other species too but it's just like you know, yeah, it's almost like it's it, a status symbol at this point. I think, yeah, like, it's, it's like a social media status thing. It's like, oh, I have this. Like it's kind of like driving around in a, a Rolls Royce or something. You know, that's probably well, bad. And, <laughs> uh, so. And here, here's like a caveat, right? So, like, I think there's a reasonable price and then a ridiculous price. So, people, I've gotten chastised for it. I'm sure Ryan might have too. I don't know. And it's key, you know, like when we have our white lips, I've had a few people tell me like 800 to a thousand dollars. That's kind of, that's ridiculous. Don't you think? I remember when I could get these at 250 bucks or something like that. And I remember those days too, but here's the deal. I killed those snakes. So yeah. it's like, do I sell them cheap just so someone can kill them? Cause I actually enjoy them, but not sell them like whatever people sell these other rare species you know well i guess you say rare harder to breed species i guess but since you can't get imports but it's just like i just don't want you to kill this thing and there is a bit of a there is a bit of a of like between oh it's so cheap it's a disposable pet to okay i spent a little money on this i better actually do a little bit more reading and question asking than just you know than just dumping a paycheck in it and, you know, or whatever it is. It's probably about a 20 grand spread, but on bull and spice, yeah. you know, about. Yeah, no, grand, yeah, I'm not trying. Price, I, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to just trying to, I don't know. I was just trying to, I don't know, give example of something where I think it's okay to ask a little bit more than, say, you know, a wild caught animal, but not. Well, even the Bolins, fucking the wild caught ones are not much farther behind i don't think i think they're still 10 grand or something wow, like yeah, that that's and it's just, crazy it's yeah, just like yeah totally not yeah and it's and like I'm, i want to part of go ahead oh go ahead no i was gonna take a jab at somebody but i i won't do it i'll stay i'll keep <laughs> i won't do it <laughs> okay well i was just gonna highlight that anytime right well Two, two of my fundamental points whenever we talk about, oh, X used to cost Y, right? The first is that, like, sure, but that was worth more. You know, like, $100 in 1990 is, you know, today would be whatever it is, $180, $200 or whatever. Um, right. So that's the first thing where people kind of distort it when it's like, I mean, sometimes in the worst case scenarios, you hear that and it's like, Oh, they were paying you seven hundred dollars to take that animal from them. Like that's what the price used to be. That's that you know that we kind of veer into that territory. That's a little unrealistic. Um, right. But the other point would be that 
a lot of that price, right, is artificially low because the cost was externalized on the environment, right? You, if you talk about Kendoya, right? Oh, Kendoya used to be $20, and it's like, yeah, because the person, all that was required was the cost to collect them and to sell them, to, to ship them and sell them. That was the only cost right. that was being accounted for. If we're talking about something that, you know, if, especially on those small Candelia, maybe only has a handful of, ba- like a Carinata, right, that only has two or three babies. They take five or six years to mature, and to be a sellable safe size, that's going to be another year. It's like, yeah, if you actually had to pay for that rather than just snatching it from the wild, that should cost a lot more money <laughs> because you're yeah. accounting for that cost instead of externalizing the cost onto the island that you collected it from where you've just taken advantage, capitalized on all the expenditure of the environment, and then all you had to do was collect it, uh, not nothing, ship it, again, not nothing, and sell it. But at the same time, like if we say, like, oh, they should be $40. No, they shouldn't. They should never have been $40. Karusha, mm-hmm. the uh, prehensile-tailed skinks, is the best example of this, right? If you look at their reproductive rate, where we're talking about the price point now, of, oh, they used to be, I don't know, people would say $5, you know, 5 to 45 to 90 to 100 whatever whatever figure someone would pull out, versus now they're 850 or 900 even for farmed from the Solomon Islands, for that price, well, they should be because they have what one, maybe two babies, maybe every year, maybe every other year. That thing should cost a lot of money. Like inherently, it should. Right. right. Yeah, and it's also your time too, right? I mean, yeah, you're getting. Oh, 100%. The, yeah, like I mean, no, Linda, it's like there has to be some value on that, right? Yeah. You, know? you you would think so. People only view that through the, the lens of their own time, though. In general. I mean, if you're if you're a better anything, right? Just think of anything. If you're better at your job, you're gonna be you're gonna you're gonna move up and get paid more or whatever. You're good, you know. If you're better at uh, playing guitar than somebody else, you're gonna get you know. If you're better at making YouTube videos, you're gonna get more followers and you know. So, but but if you're better at snake breeding, somehow you shouldn't get paid more. That to me was just always you're been, being crazy, Eric. That's crazy. yeah, that's just silly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You greedy asshole. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I did that. Yeah. This, this industry is something else, you know, and I, and I think there's, you need to have a little more, I think some people too need, uh, maybe realistic, being more realistic with what they decide to do too. Cause I had an example and I'll, I'll bring it to Morelli for instance. So I had a uh, baby jungle carpets and you guys know how baby jungles can be. They're kind of assholes. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I'm not gonna lie. They're, I mean, they can they'll light you up. So I had a, I had a, a guy call me a while ago, and he was asking, you know, um, uh, you know, my daughter really likes these jungle carpets. You know, she'd really, you know, she's never had carpets. She's only had boas. And I go, man, if you've had boas, you probably could deal with a carpet because I mean, a boas are a boas hiss is just going to be more intimidating than a carpet. You know, in general, you know, even a baby boa has a pair of lungs on them in comparison <laughs> to like, well, even most pythons relative to size. And, um, and, but she said, he goes, oh, but they've never been bad. And I go, well, these jungle carpets probably aren't for you. So then uh, I thought, cause I just sent him the money for him. I go, but you know who you need to go talk to? Go talk to Justin about his inland carpets. Because I go, you want something that's a lot more 
mellow and easygoing. And, you know, especially if you like that Azantic look, you'll probably really like these inlands. And I had a, you know, cause I was like, it's one of those, you gotta be, you just gotta be honest to people too. Cause it's like, do you really yeah. want to like this little girl gets a carpet Python and it's the meanest thing on earth. And then she goes, I hate carpet pythons or just scares right. her off from the species. I think that's just such sure. a shame that, you know, people would just undermine, you know, just to make a sale. But, you know, I, I think, I think there needs to be some better, uh, Oh, I don't know the words on the tip of my tongue, but just better at policing, I guess, when it comes to stuff like that or better at, you know, being a judge, a good character, I guess, you know, cause you know, don't just sell it to sell it, you know, you, you know, try to fit it to the right person or the right animal to the right person, because, you know, that's going to come back and, but well, it may not bite you. Well, it could bite you in the long run if they just decide, you know, I just don't like reptiles if they're just as mean, you know, right. I kind of think I, that's always been my pushback with this whole dwarf and swoop super dwarf retic thing right it's like they they portray it in a way that it makes it seem like it's the size of a of a of a small to medium-sized python and yeah i i, I i'm not going to disagree that there's probably examples that maybe are there but like when you're talking average sizes of these things you're it, nobody says six feet you know you know you know what i mean it's always like oh it's 10 to 12 feet 10 to 12 feet is still a, a freaking, that's a big snake. Like, I, I well, don't. did you see what happened? I'm sure both of you saw it, but did you see that, uh, Austra- what was he, a relocator, an Australian relo- wildlife relocator? And he caught a, a big male carpet python and he was handling it and it turned oh, yes. around and bit him and it yeah. rolled its head and, 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 you know, and severed an artery. And I go, yeah. Could you imagine that? You know what that immediately immediately made me think of is everyone who has an employee that owns the medium sized pythons and they're just willy nilly messing with their snake and, you know, get a bad reaction out of one. Could you imagine walking in onto that? Holy shit. Or your kid, you know, it's it's, it made me really think that, you know, yeah, when you said that with the Superdorf retics and stuff, I'm like, yeah, that's a 12 foot retic and still put some serious hurting on you if an eight foot carpet can nearly kill you even though that was like one might have been a one in a million but still the fact that that could happen you know yeah that just yeah and it really comes down to whether or not you're gonna withstand the bite like i think probably the three of us are are probably experienced enough to and and, you know if we get nailed in that type of way we're sort of gonna you know we're we're sort of prepared for it if you will but think about somebody that's not prepared for it and is going into those enclosures and stuff or has it as a pet and it's like oh well this is just uh, you know snuffles you know or whatever and and just like oh yeah it's always cool and then they're not even taking i I hear I'm not 100 percent with this. Maybe you can fill me in more. But aren't retics, especially males during the breeding season, like extra aggressive? Uh, I guess is the word, or maybe turned on. I don't. I don't know what the the word would be. I know aggressive is sometimes not the not the the terminology, but like basically they're going to be it's like going to be breeding. They're about breeding to light you up. Yeah. 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 I had a. I had a. Uh, so it's like a hit and miss thing. So when I worked with Ben. Ben had a he had a pretty decent number of retics, and uh, 
he would have one male who might who would be going through the seasons like he was ready to breed and i think that might be more of a maybe a submissive thing you know animals who combat you know you might have one that's more has a higher level of testosterone than another one or something and i've had uh that's actually one of the few bites by the big retake i got was by a male who he cuffed me and they they're real sneaky about it too they don't really just turn around and at least the ones I've messed with don't strike you right away. What they do is they cuff you with their their tail, and then they slowly come back. They quickly, but you know, really calmly and quickly turn back around on you, and then they start doing the head rub. And it's very, it's actually pretty similar to anteresia. Do really similar things. You know, yeah. my anteresia will do that where you handle them, they're okay, and then they start getting tired of it, and then they start squeezing my hand, and then next thing I know, it I get a head looking at my hand. And it's very, it was really similar to that when it comes to some of those retics. But I've I've seen some retics that were fine male wise. But like I said, do you are you going to know that when you get it? Probably not. You know, and even if he is calm, if you move him to a different environment, could that trigger it? Could that right. could that be what ch- you know changes is because you know have you you guys have probably heard about certain females you know really docile, really calm, but then once they've had their first clutch, they become monsters. Or they, yeah. you know, cha- I've seen retics do it, you know, a gentle retic turns into a monster after you, you know, rather it's because she became a mother or because you took her eggs and she just wasn't appreciative of that. Who knows? But, right. You know. Yeah. Maybe she associates your scent now with, uh, with yeah, the, the, the egg stealing monkey. Yeah, you used right, to be the right. food monkey, but now you're the egg stealing monkey. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that, right? With the the whole coming back around, because I think my experience with big retics is like uh, I went to Matt Minnetola's place years ago when I first was meeting him and all, and we had out his big retic. And again, this thing was probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 feet at tops, you know, it was a big snake, but it wasn't like, you know, when we think of retics, like this 18 foot snake. And it still was a lot of snake. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's just yeah. so, to me, that's just so misleading in so many ways. It's like, what? 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 If you want a retick, then you get a retick. But you should know what you're getting and, and, and you should understand. It's the same thing with Apidora. It's the same thing with Scrub Python. It's the same thing with, with any lar- large uh, constrictor, you know, in my opinion. Um, and then. Right. You know, it, it sort of wrapped around my leg and it did that slow turnaround and I could see it like opening its mouth and it just seemed like, and I was like, and he's like, oh shit, let's put it back, you know. Right. Well, and that's another thing too, is I think people need to be better judges of their own character too, because, you know, you have people who are pretty calm in stressful situations and then you got people right. who just lose their shit. You know, people yeah. who don't logically think they're panicking, yeah. they do rapid breathing, they just, they freak out. And that's just not a good mix if you're going to deal with anything that could potentially be dangerous. I mean, the yeah. same can happen with anything in life. Rather, if you're lifting heavy weights or if you're in the MMA or fighting or anything where you, there's a chance of you getting hurt. I mean, even big dogs. I mean, if you if you sure. don't know how to control a big canid and that thing decides to attack another dog, are you going to panic? Are you going to be able to calmly, you know, remove the dog or whatever it is or it could be it could even be people too you work with a bunch of crazy people you know you're gonna be able to stay calm in that situation or you're gonna lose your mind as soon as someone freaks the fuck out you know yeah man 
I think my so, job has taught me that 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 steady type of you know because it's just and any given day something's going to happen. So you sort of have to stay cool because as being the boss, right? I learned this early on, like uh, when I used to work at this one store, the power would go out constantly, right? And it was always such a panic, and I could never understand why everybody was so panicked. And then I started looking at the boss, and I was like. Well, that's because she's in this panic state. So like she's in this panic state. It's like, so when I took over for her, she went to another store and I took over for her. That was like the first thing that, that I said, I was like, okay, I'm going to stay as calm as I can be. And that me staying calm kept every, everybody else was chill. And I was like, wow, that really did work, you know? So like, yeah, that makes a huge difference. And I wonder if that also feeds to the animal to even make this a, a, a bad situation worse, right? You know, I mean, right. if you're all yeah. of a sudden, you know, doing whatever you're doing because you're freaking out, you know, well, you yeah, if you're, nailed if you're again. By, <laughs> yeah, if you're getting wrapped by any kind of sizable constrictor and you go to rip your hand out, you know, it, it, you know what? Another one is the people who free handle or mess with venomous snakes, you know, if you get bit. And your your heart rate's up. That means blood's flowing quick, flowing the venom through your system quicker. So, you know, it's not going to help you if it's moving yeah. through your system quicker. You know, yeah. so it like I said, it can. There's this. There's so many. Like I said, you got to. I think you need to know yourself when it comes to messing with anything that could potentially hurt you. You know, there has yeah, the Rob, possibility of hurting you. Rob will tell you. I think for me, probably the one that scared me the most is Apodora. Um, just, you know, like literally the snake was in a, you know, I, I had it quarantined in, you know, a, a big, uh, big cage, but it had the glass and it just, just by boom, glass is gone. Like what, <laughs> what just happened? You know, um, yeah, that species. That's, that's. Uh, we had a big. I had a big retic. I used to work with. She was a monster. She's probably about eighteen foot, and she mm. would. All, all the retics Ben would have when I would clean retics. Usually, the the method we would do is put them in a tub, put their glass, uh, the the glass onto the tub for weight to try to keep it down. Well, I mean, this female had like these. I mean, big pieces of glass. I mean, there were six foot long sh- sheets of glass that had some serious weight to them and right. most retics seem pretty deterred i mean i think most retics could push their way out if they wanted to but most right. of them were pretty deterred once they felt a little bit of resistance this retic i mean she would you had to be careful she would break the glass just because she would just pop right out of the top of that thing and just get going you know and then you had to <laughs> wrangle this retic back into this this cleaning tub and you're just like this is this is horrendous. Well, when Owen had the pie retic, I think of how many times it broke out of his cage because it broke the glass, you know? Like, I yeah, think you probably time to move on from that one, man. Dude, <laughs> you, know? I, you know, you know how, God, this is getting us on so many stories, but do you, you guys have had to have, like, you know, I'm sure fucking Rob with all working at, uh, working at Pro, Pro Exotics. Exotics for that little while is you get those customer stories, right? And you get a lot of, I hate to say this, but you get a lot of dumb people out there. A <laughs> lot of dumb people. Yeah. Now, think about this. How many people in the U.S. who have these big constrictors have had something go wrong where the big snake got out or the big snake was roaming and ate their cat and dog and just nobody knew about it? 
or something like that. You know, I can't imagine how many people's had like other pets vanish because their big <laughs> snake was just too, they just, their cage wasn't, it wasn't proper for that animal or yeah. something like yeah. that. You know, cause sure. I've heard some, I've heard some absolutely ridiculous stories with ball python. So I couldn't even fathom what retic people have heard, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And, I think the uh, I think you're right. Maybe sometimes uh, you know I I I just think of the people purchasing retics at Hamburg and they're just doing it on a whim or whatever and and uh, you know they're walking out with this animal and it's, you know they think it's the greatest thing ever and then they they just don't realize the power of that animal and to oh, yeah. your point right they're not they're not they're not taking into consideration what's the you know like this the thickness of the glass that keep the animal and like, you know what I mean? The strength of the cage. It's like, ah, well shit, man. In the old days, in the seventies and eighties, it was like putting bricks on top of the cage. Right. right, right. Bricks and books. Oh man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I can, I can tell you, man, people, especially when I see some really little people too, man, like you see some people like small kids and you go, you know, you don't want to be manhandling a snake, but sometimes you want to at least have some sort of strength to be able to hold the snake, especially if it's yeah. a big retic or berm. I remember I had Ben had one golden child. She was a very aggro snake. She just did not like getting touched. And they, that thing, as soon as it hit the floor, it was game on. This thing was ready to turn around, bite you. You know, right. I try to get it instead of getting into the cleaning tub. It's all right, back into the cage and start this over again. Like I've never had a snake work me so hard that I had to puke after cleaning it. Like it was just, <laughs> oh, wow, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, and I'm not a small guy either. So it's not, it, it's like a lot of people would be thoroughly surprised how big a, or how strong a 60 pound or 80 pound snake can be, you know? Yeah, man. It's Cause it's solid muscle. I mean, it's oh, just yeah. one big muscle, you know, it's uh... with sharp teeth on the other end too. So if you fuck with <laughs> yeah. it wrong, it's going to use them. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, here's one of the things that, uh, you know, with the breeding thing, it's like, do you, do do you have any thoughts on some of these, uh, more, uh, let's say for lack of a better word, difficult species to breed? Do you think that maybe we're getting the timing wrong and breeding them? Like we're breeding them. We're wanting them to fit within the Python formula, let's say. And, you know, maybe they're, uh, their their time or season is outside of that you know for whatever the factor could be but if you're like paying attention to the snake and you start to see her like i don't know there's certain behaviors that you notice that you're like oh i guess it's breeding you know like i think of like you walk into my room in 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 november and you see the males cruising around the cage like that's just how it goes you know and then you're like okay I'm on the right track type of deal. So do you think that maybe there's cues that people might be missing um, when it comes to some of these more obscure species and they're not just doing it at the right time? I don't know. Uh, So I, I I think it kind of just depends too. Like I said, I think there's just so many variables to it. Like, um, so say you're Ryan, or maybe, all right, we'll say if you're Ryan who lives up in, you know, actually, we'll cut it to this line. Anyone who, because even Vin Russo, Vin Russo has pretty good success with a lot of different species. But where right. is he? Up in New York where he gets a pretty decent season. You know, it's not, I don't think, I mean, you guys would know better, you would know better than us, uh, Eric, but, 
you know, New York, it's, it's probably cold when it's winter, right? It's not like yeah. 70, 80 degrees like <laughs> we <would> no. sometimes <laughs> get. So, yeah. yeah, they seem to – and they get consistent. I've heard – I've only ever heard room or stories of some of the snowstorms, you know, New York and stuff gets. But, I mean, they get more of a actual season whereas – and then Florida in the, and, you know, some – a lot of the southern states they get like rainy seasons and stuff you know they still get seasons too and then you got us who the unlucky bastards you seem to live in the middle of the state who gets <laughs> amalgamation of everyone you know right and um it kind of makes me wonder it's like maybe you can rely more seasonally on if you live in those more predictable climates mm-hmm. and maybe if you're more in the midwest or up in you know the center of the you know, center of the states or center of the U.S., maybe you have to be a little bit more flexible. You know, if you have a really intense snowstorm like anyone else and you might be lucky then, or if you um, don't, you might have to rely on like a uh, maybe a more distinct feeding season or something like that, you know, because like I said, this female white lip python, she laid her clutch when her clutch last year was already hatched and established like they were eating and ready to go you know they were mm-hmm. i mean probably shoot they were probably close to a month out of the egg already by the time you know they were she had this uh this year's clutch so and then lisa lisa's another one too she did hers i think i think the same as like ryan would roughly do it and then she did it a little bit later she decided to cycle her during the summer and if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken, and I don't want to put words in her, I don't mean to put words in her mouth, but I thought she said something about she's going to try again in the uh, fall and see if she can get her to do a winter class. I don't know if it was this year she was going to try or she's going to try next year. But uh, so it yeah, seems like remember. you can you can kind of you could take it however you want. Like I said, well, wasn't um wasn't um gourmet rodents? Weren't they breeding like Timors year round too? Lesser I think Sunday so. pythons. I, I thought so. they were too, because I thought they were getting weird, like hatching in December or something like November or yeah, something. I thought, but me and Owen were talking about that um, when that happened, and it was sort of like I was like, "Well, that's weird. Maybe that's why you can't breed them because you're breeding them at the wrong time." You know, like yeah, I don't know. It just was. It's it was so out of the norm of what you would think that they would breed. I think. I remember Ryan talking about that. Maybe it was, I think he wrote an article in Reptiles Magazine and um, it was about Savu pythons. And that was one of the things that was uh, talked about was that they're, they, they breed much later than what you would think, um, you know, and, and I'm thinking like, oh, wow. Like, I don't know. I, I always think of like winter and spring, but this was more of like their summer breeders. And then I'm thinking, well, is that because of where he's at or is that because of, like you know there's something going on that that's triggering that um so i got something different yeah i well see i got some well i mean even savu pythons i've seen people breed savu pythons the same as any other liasses i think the guy up in canada who does did the poplin pythons i think he breeds his savus like this like i think around the same time anyone else would you know ryan or something but um Uh, I had a Maclot python, right? She started, she would, I remember 2021, I bred her. She was breeding in April. She was breeding around that February, April, uh, March, April time, I think, somewhere around there. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I noticed I was doing more of the the Nick Mutton uh, and more of the carpet guy kind of mentality, right? Where I would feed real heavy in the fall and then stop during winter. And she would breed when she wasn't getting fed. Ryan, and then that's when I go, you know, I didn't have that much success with as much as I thought I would. So that's when I would ask Ryan, since Ryan had probably the better success with Indonesian stuff. And Ryan goes, well, I feed fall and then feed all winter and then he just doesn't feed as much during summer or whatnot so i did that with my maclaw python last year and she nothing happened i did it this year nothing happened when i was feeding her during winter or the winter season and as soon summertime is when i just stopped feeding so around may i usually done you just don't get to eat till next till fall roughly and um as soon as i stopped feeding her she started getting the male started really interested in breeding. Like he hmm. really, I mean, he would he wouldn't leave her alone. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. It's like as soon as I stopped feeding, then you were interested. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But I've seen Savu pythons breed. I mean, uh, Gary Shafino is. I think he just got ovulations with yeah. some of his Savu pythons. I don't know if this would be that traditional year that most people would get them, but I mean, it's. They'll be pretty late clutches, you know. What was um what was the time frame between when you stopped feeding to when you noticed the males had interest? I mean, it was within three weeks. I noticed it was like three weeks. One, it's almost like they, because I was feeding about week every five to seven days. I was feeding them something, mm-hmm. you know. Rather, it was a big, small meal, something like that. But I was trying to keep it consistent, so there was that consistency there, and then. As soon as I stopped, that's when I noticed the breeding going on, you know. Right. But like I said, I didn't have that intense of a winter, and so my room didn't really get all that cold. And, you know, all the all the pythons I had the roughest time with this time of year were my Australian ones, hmm. you know. So that kind of makes me wonder, well, maybe Nick having better success with Australian stuff, maybe his way – I like I said, and I, I don't, I'm not saying – like I said, this whole conversation to, for me has been, it's just not black and white. I think there's just Correct. more to it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's individual, it's individual too, you know, may, you know, certain animals and, you know, some animals will just be better breeders too. I think that's, even if they're same condition, one female just might be a more reliable female. Cause here, here's an example is I got three female white lips, all mm-hmm. the same size. They're all sisters all in the same area, set up the same and everything. And one female breeds for me, well, so far pretty well. The female underneath her, I've seen males lock with her, but I've also, she's also tried to kill a few males. She has a, she has a reputation to her. I've had to mm-hmm. beat a couple ma- I had to beat a, beat her off a few males a few times, you know, but, then the female underneath her has been bred, but there, I, I remember Ryan saying something. And I think Lisa said it too. And I think it's, I think it's what makes the white loop pythons really interesting is they almost seem to enjoy the female. I don't like, it's almost like a protection thing. Like I notice when I, I went into, <laughs> when I went into that tub, like their lay box tub, she would, he, not she, he would come straight out, look at me. He wouldn't bite. I'm sure if I got closer, he would have. 
but he would come straight out, look at me, and just, you know, that pose, that white lip pose they give you before they're probably going to light you up. So, and then as soon as they were done, wanted nothing to do with each other. They were willing to bite each other, too. When they were done with each other, done. Wanted nothing Mm. to do with each other. But then my uh, one pair, they would breed, but they just didn't have that chemistry that that one female had. What could that change if maybe I tried uh, right now? Like right now, I'm not really trying. But if I tried now, would that be would that trigger something? I don't know. They're not really giving me signs. My female, who she gave me signs pretty quick. As soon as she went off food, like she was, she stopped eating right around the time I would, right towards the end of when I would stop feeding, and that kind of let me know white lips don't typically go off food unless they're in shed. Or if something else is going on, like building follicles. So that's when I was like, oh, shit, I guess she's building follicles. And then as soon as I put that mail in, it was just like, you know, romance all over again. It was like something out of the notebook, you know. <laughs> yeah, when you, were, when you were saying, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Owen said the same thing about the male being protective and whatnot. And it, it made me think, right, like a couple things. One, like I think when I, I've been – when I was getting into pythons in the early days and whatnot, it was always like I just would go buy a pair and wouldn't even put any thought into the idea that number one is are they good, are they going to be good breeders, right? Uh, number two, are they compatible? Um, you know, and and there's like not a thought to that. It's just somehow like if I'm buying captive born and bred, right? The idea would be, oh, well, these are fine. You know, you know, you know what I mean? It would be like yeah. this mindset that was sort of in the hobby that it would be like, oh, well, these are captive born and bred. You'll have no problem. Just put the male with the female. All, all things are good. Um, and then I thought about when you were saying about like the white lips being on top of each other. I wonder if there's with that species in particular, uh, you know, um, is there some type of, you know, because if you're going to try to breed them, most people that do have a group of them, right? Because if you're going to try to breed a species that's not, you know, let's, you know, they're coming in wild caught or whatever the case would be, um, you're go- you're going to have sort of a you're going to have more than just a pair. I mean, some people may have a pair and it's just sort of an afterthought. But if it's like one of your main projects, you're going to have some type of group to them, right? Um, and do those females like? Do they have a dominant structure to where if that one female is like, will the other females not lay or breed because that other female has pheromones that are going around that saying that this is her area to breed? Are they are they territorial like that? I I don't, I don't know. I you know that you know you just kind of gave me an idea that I I don't. It's one of those I kind of want to do it, but then I kind of don't want to if it face bad repercussions from trying. I almost might want to try to do a group breeding with, you know, one male. I would never do two male white lips. I almost right. guarantee though you'll get someone killing the other. But I'd almost be interested to see if you put one male with two females, if that's the case. Because I do it with ball pythons, right? So people just assume all ball pythons are going to like each other regardless. They're just, I mean, they are breeding machines. But that's yeah. not always the case. I've had some females that were proven females that actually ended up being compatible with that male the following season. But that season, they would combat that male like it was another, you know, a male-male combat. And I was just like, huh, that's weird. You had to double-check the sex or, you know, if it, if it was a virgin female, you weren't for sure. Uh, but if it, I've had proven breeder females, you know, 
reluctant to have a male breed and buck them off, fight, you know, not fight them, but push them and all kinds of stuff. And, um, as soon as, uh, I don't know, maybe the following year, put them together just fine. Don't have a problem. And, hmm. um, I've had this vice versa. Like I've had young males with older females and the older female didn't like the young male. I've had real old season breeder males in with the younger females or not younger females, older females still. And they just, whatever reason, didn't like that male, bucked them away, you know? And I think it's, you know, that's why I don't know. I'm not sure on this. I think like, even that I think is more complicated than they just either compatible or they're not. Is it just, they're not compatible or we're just not triggering that female, right? Or she's just not building follicles because most species people kind of base a lot more off of what they see like visually on the outside rather than what a ball python guy would see on the inside where I got proof that this female's building follicles. Most people just in this miscellaneous world kind of just assume, oh, she has followers. She, uh, yeah, they're just not, well, you can't tell because we just don't know, you know, if you're not familiar with it, you know, I wonder too, a thought that just popped in my head as you were saying that is like, I wonder too, if like maybe some of these non-compatible pairs that you're putting together is, could it be that they're not in the season, right? Meaning that when they are in the season, they're willing to overlook the fact that, you know, they would normally kill each other being in the same enclosure, let's say, um, or be aggressive to say, stay out of my enclosure. And then all of a sudden now they're in the season. So, you know, that female is, is, you know, if she's not in that mode where she's building, building follicles, um, why not say that if she's not in that mode where she's building follicles, then maybe that's why that male, like why she's getting that male out. Like she might be receptive if she was building follicles. We just assume again, this is the, you know, putting it into the season, right? Oh, it's November. So I'm going to put my snakes, you know, I'm going to start to cool them in December. I'm going to put them together or whatever the case would be. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, like the reason that, that you're, you're having this is because they're not both ready to breed. Like maybe one is and the other one isn't. Um, and sort of overlooking that fact. What are your thoughts? Uh, I kind of wonder if it's tricking them too. Cause like, uh, with ball pythons, I'll group breed, not just females, but I'll leave pairs of males together and I'll just leave mm -hmm. a group of males in there. And I think, you know, I think most people who have ball pythons know ball pythons will combat, mm -hmm. but I wonder if it's more of a size thing than a, uh, than a male to male thing, because oh, I know gotcha. I keep my males, I keep my males small. Like this is going to blow ball python on people's minds, but my males are 500 grams their first year. Crazy. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. I know it's a ball python guy's going to hear that and be like, you don't feed your snakes or yeah, I'm sorry. I couldn't mm. help but make a jab at that, but yeah, yeah. they're small. You're not getting they're, over I that keep... thousand gram walls. No, I, well, <laughs> I mean, they, they will. Yeah. They'll get there, but they're usually like, they're usually like seven, eight, nine years old. I'm just right. not a big fan of big males. Personally. I don't have a problem no. with it. Like if I, you know, I prefer just keeping them uh, smaller, but I noticed the smaller males seem they will fight with each other. Every once in a while, I'll catch them. They'll be fine for a, an extended period of time. And I used to believe that it used to be until a female starts building big enough follicles and it was 
oh, hey, I want to be procreating with her, not you, and they'll fight each other. But then I've had other times where females were building and they were still fine. They just they just would it was almost like ball uh like with you see with a lot of bowed species you know and uh carpet pythons this is gonna be crazy but i've bred i've bred a lot of male carpets like that because i don't keep my males very big i have some males that will kill each other but generally speaking i've had some males you leave in there for fucking a week at a time and they just wouldn't do shit with each other rather the female just wasn't building then and that's why because i've had some i've had that same scenario but carpets are a little bit more extreme. They'll actually bite each other. Because I yeah. remember leaving two I, – I, I have such a shit time with Darwin carpets. Like <laughs> they just don't want anything to do with each other. So I said, fuck it. I'm just going to leave the two males in, and I'm just going to let them fucking like beat each other up, whatever. Right. And I forgot about them. Well, I came back, and I saw a little bit of blood splattering on the front of the – enclosure and i go oh shit i go what just happened and i go in there and one of the males tore slashes kind of like a smaller version of a retic into yep. like the, the the side in the back it, uh-huh. it wasn't like ryan young's popoon python bad but it was yeah. like holy shit i go good thing i didn't leave you guys in there any longer you might have had a whole lot worse of a situation yeah. on your hands you know but yeah, I wonder even with the males, right? Like this is sort of like what my thinking was with the females, right? It's like they seem, at least in my experience, that like if I put two males together and it's not in the breeding season, it's not necessary. I'm not going to see combat right away. You know, I, it's not like they have to be in that mode of breeding. So I think of, I think there was a paper that was done on short tails where the female ovulated because she smelled the i think that's how it went she she could smell the pheromones from the male which sort of pushed the female into ovulating um i don't know if you ever saw that paper or whatever but it's more or less saying like uh you know i i think that there's probably because we can't smell it or we don't have a reaction to it or whatever the case would be are we picking up on those cues that maybe those snakes Oh, yeah, I mean, you, you you hear it about it in mammals and stuff too. Like, there's sounds that mammals will make to each other that you, we humans, our ears just can't pick up. I'm sure there's snakes probably aren't making sounds, but they're making. I'm sure there's certain sounds that they're way. making yeah. some sense or something or pheromones are releasing. You know that, and the you know let the female either let the female know or let the male. I've you know send me that paper because honestly, I don't think I heard about the male having much to do with it but that's interesting i didn't i don't think i heard of that one so that's that's yeah. pretty interesting if the male i just always assume the female you know she just went when she was with went and the male was just always willing and able like any other male that's just what i i would have assumed but and this I was in captivity it, so i don't so, know obviously that plays a factor in it too but right, like uh right you know i i i want to say i I don't know if it was. I forget who wrote the paper, but yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. It was it was interesting nonetheless. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Rob's there still. Or yeah, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, I don't. I would assume He's it's quiet for a while. lab, but I don't know. Yeah, you guys have been going. You're good. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought maybe you stepped away for a minute or something. But um, <laughs> do you remember that paper, Rob? Do you do? You, do I do not. I remember things in that vein, which is why I say it's probably Denardo's lab. 
but okay. I don't remember that one in particular. Okay. I have it somewhere in one of my files somewhere. So, yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> you have any thoughts, so, Rob, on the whole idea? Oh, go ahead. Well, I'll let Rob talk because I got another topic. I, this one might be maybe a bit more controversial topic, okay. but I want to hear if Rob has anything else to throw because it might be – it's a little off topic, but another – it still has to do with the breeding aspect right. of it. No, I'm game to hear it. Let's go. Good. Okay. okay. Let's do it. So – and I've heard rumblings about this. Don't know. Someone said there was a paper. Haven't seen it. So can't quote it. Can't say anything about it. But I have seen – and it, it was mentioned in Dave and Tracy's Invisible Arc book – I think, too, there might be something to say about too stimulated. And what I mean by that is too much environmental enrichment. Now, let me say this, because I know the first thing most people are going to say, <laughs> but they still breed in the wild. But when you got okay. a population that might be 10,000, 20,000, I'm sure 10 to 15% of that will breed. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know... I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm going to bash you know, big enclosure keepers or nothing. It's not even big enclosures. I think it's too much enrichment. And, like, I'm talking, like, Dave and Tracy made a statement in their book. I remember a while ago how – and I, I feel bad talking about this because it sounds like I'm condoning this, but I don't want to I – just, I just think it's just something to talk about. Mm-hmm. And maybe someone can, you know, give me more information. But I remember Dave, Dave – talking about back in the back in when he worked at zoos which i would assume would have been maybe the 70s and 80s i believe he was talking about it would have probably had to have been probably in the early 80s because i think 80 late 80s and 90s is when zoos start picking up and doing larger and more naturalistic enclosures or bigger enclosures but they said back in the day when it was a bit more basic they would get a lot more breeding out of animals compared to nowadays where that's not, but it's not their concern. Obviously, now back in the eighties, it was breed everything as much as possible. Now it's we want these animals to just live a you know a good long life in an enriched you know environment. So I mm-hmm. wonder, could that play a role in if we give these animals? And, and I say this as in probably most of us, especially for breeders, probably aren't keeping and big naturalistic like all kinds of enrichment and stuff enclosures we're probably keeping fairly basic or really basic depending on the species so mm-hmm. i think that might be something to think about for people and it, like i said do you want to be a breeder like a like make a some sort of income and would it matter i don't know do you just want to have an animal in a nice naturalistic and if it breeds it breeds you're not going to lose sleep over it or whatnot i don't know i kind of wonder if that because i've heard someone say something about too much stimuli causing less reproductive events because and could that be too and i don't like i said i don't know the paper i don't know if that was an animal that was never given stimuli and then given stimuli and still trying to breed or but who knows? Wild-caught animals, a lot of people had success in minimal cl- enclosures. I don't know the ratio if they kept them in more naturalistic enclosures, if it would have been different. 
but that was another, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. It was just something I heard a rumbling about. It was basically whenever this whole ball Python, you know, bioactive people were fighting. I was hearing rumblings of something about that. And I thought it was kind of interesting. And then I remember Dave talking about it in his book or the invisible art talking about how he, he noticed a dramatic shift you know, and breeding of animals. And he's primarily talking like cats, big cats and, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So. You have any thoughts on that, Rob? <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to put some thoughts together, I think, uh, before I would okay. jump out on a limb on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, what would be causing, I guess the question I would ask is, like, why would why would overstimulate like is it stress you, is is that the thought like if you're if you're given too much enrichment too it's stress m- i don't the only thing i can think about or put like equate this to something is somebody who's i don't mean to anthropomorphize this and make this sound weird but the only way i can equate this is when you're talking about like a person with stimuli, stimuli being something like interest, hobbies. When you have a bunch of hobbies and a bunch of interests, or you're trying to do something where you're busy constantly, your mind's always stimulated. You may not be thinking about procreation, sex, all that that often, but I know plenty of people who, like I said, this is anecdotal. This is just stuff I've ex- I've seen, but I it kind of has some merit, I think. But I can kind of see like, all right, if the and then I know the people who don't have any hobbies and are just out to, you know, one night stands or find a wife or whatever it is, or they have a whole different mindset. Now, I don't if they had hobbies, would that be different? I don't know. I think if, if I had a lot less hobbies and didn't have as many snakes, I'm sure I would have a whole different I'd be doing a whole lot of different things, but. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. I'm just saying I, it's hard to say. And like I said, in people, like I know the biggest thing is going to be, well, they do it in the wild with all that stimuli. But like I said, if it's, it's kind of like when you equate breeding, like if a breeder is only getting, you know, if you have a population of 10,000 animals or something in the wild and 10% of it's breeding, that's still a significant amount and enough to pass the genes on to the next generation. And like I said, this could also be if they're wild or if they had no stimuli and then suddenly was given stimuli, I could see how that could be just a. I kind of think of like, uh, I think what comes to mind when with that would be, um, I think of the argument that, and again, I, 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 don't necessarily know one way or the other or have skin in the game when it comes to this, but I'm just looking at it from an unbiased spot. Right. And I remember, um, I think his name is Liam. He was arguing about with the guy from, uh, from Canada. He's a big ball Python breeder in Canada. And the thing that I noticed was that, um, you know, it would be that, he would like the the ball python breeder is is coming from a different spot and i think his arguments are not necessarily based on facts if you will 
as much as it's based on, um, you know, what he, what he, th- like, you know, I, I think, I think to the whole point of the show, right. Is that there's so many situations that, uh, um, that we don't understand that are at play and we sort of just sort of go to the ones that we're either familiar with or that we think, um, is the case. Uh, um, and we just sort of say, Oh, well that's sort of how it's always been done. And I, 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 he was arguing back with actual facts and data, not, you know, and the other guy wasn't. So it just makes me think like, is that, a breeder trying to justify the fact that they're breeding in a certain way. Um, I just wish that if that was the case, that they would just be more honest and just say, Hey, I'm breeding. I'm a breeder. This is how we breed. You know, uh, I don't know. Yeah. The one thing that jumps out to me is it remind actually, as you talk through that, it reminded me of her exotics back 20, well, nearly 20 years ago, we had a bunch of Gila monsters and beaded lizards. And our best success with them was breeding them in Rubbermaid totes in a rack. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin had gotten the cool idea, and it indeed looked cool, to set them up like monitors where we're putting them in the four-foot four foot to six-foot horse troughs that are two to three feet deep and putting in, you know, maybe those were even, yeah, probably three foot and filling them two, two foot deep with hard-packed soil. Okay. And right. it looked really cool. And they did fine. Um, maybe the dirt wasn't the perfect mix. It was probably a little too clay relative to what we'd actually want. But the point was that the production and our accessibility to that production was way worse than if they were just in 90 quart tubs. Um, there, you know, and part of that, maybe part of the point, right, is just the accessibility. And maybe this is overriding sort of, and maybe it's more dramatic in species like leopard geckos or Gila monsters where um, rather than being persuasive, it's more important that the male basically be able to dominate. You know, that's certainly with leopard geckos, right? It's not a question of persuasion. It's a question of domination. Right. And it either right. goes or doesn't. Um, and if there, there's nothing, there's no obstacles, and it's just mm-hmm. the two of them, you know, in a cage fight, then that's a lot... Uh, the male is situated to win a lot more so than if it, they, those, you had a pair, if you put a pair of leopard geckos in a six foot vivarium, it's probably a lot more difficult for him to dominate. Gotcha. You know, and maybe that's yeah. some of what we were seeing with the Gila monsters. So I don't know that that's, I don't know what that means, right, in the context of Boyd necessarily, but certainly with the Gila's, it was undeniably true that like the one that looked beautiful and, and, seemed to make sense and would suit the aesthetic, at least more so, um, was demonstrably less successful than just having them on sandy chips in a Rubbermaid tote. Right. Well, the, yeah. that's a – sorry about that, guys. I, you, I yeah, lost no you. Everyone got staticky and I was or real, like, chickmunk voice-like, and I'm like, oh, my <laughs> God, something's happening. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so no I miss I, – I heard a little bit of – of uh your uh stance eric and then i heard a little bit of rob's but uh so yeah what yeah i'm not true like i said i'm not trying to justify what the what that ball python breeder was trying to you know i know exactly what you were talking about yeah, that was cringy I, wasn't it yeah yeah and it's i don't it's, mean it's, the 
Yeah, it's not I don't like mean I'm to taking... sound like that guy. <laughs> no, 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 just... no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. I just think that sometimes, you know, when what, what, maybe it's change. Maybe it's like you know. Maybe it's ego to where if you're like a you're you're like this person that sort of breeds thousands of these animals, right? Yeah. You, you kind of feel like you have a good understanding of those animals, right? I, whether you yeah. do or you don't, eh, I, I'm going to say that you have to be somewhat knowledgeable the, about them if you have I, that many snakes. And then some kid comes along and sort of says, oh, well, here's a paper that says blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, now these two groups fight, but they're just coming at it from two different spots. And when you're 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 not... I, I just hate when people debate and they don't yeah. use data or facts yeah. to debate their side. You know, it's feelings or it's, uh, you exactly. know, uh, yeah, exactly. it's, it can't be feelings, man. <laughs> Snakes don't so breed by and, feelings. And, and, this, and, and this is the thing I have against the people who just have one species and a lot. And this is why I reference more people like Brian and Nick and stuff like that. And it, right. uh, it, it it's kind of one of those like if your formula works with one species, that's fine. But if your formula works with a wide range of species, you probably are on to something and you're successful with them. Yeah. Like those guys do something and they are successful with not just ball pythons, but a bunch of different stuff. Could that still be the same with those guys? I don't know. It, I I don't know. I, that's as far as I'll just say I don't know. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if they'd have that same success unless they tried it. But um the one thing I wanted to throw out there with the procreation and stuff like that, with the bigger and more enrichment and stuff, is because I don't know if it still equates with reptiles, but I, I'm fairly certain with mammals it's still considered an, a type of enrichment, procreation is. It still mm -hmm. stimulates you in the same way other things would, but I don't know if it still equates to reptiles. But if it does, it would, it would kind of almost make sense if you gave them – like I said, this is if you're wanting to breed them, but if you gave them options. Uh-oh. Fire. Again. Oh, am I there? Hello? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry about you're that. You're echoing now. now. Oh. Swap well, headphones. I'm echoing. No. My headphone died. I apologize. But yeah. Yeah, no I, like I uh, was saying, though, it, type of an enrichment, could that be it just – it just sounds bad overall saying it out loud, but is it just too many options that's causing them to not want to do it? I don't know. You know. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying. It's like, uh, you know, is it – if you have a snake that's coming from, say, life in Iraq, right? Let's say a ball python that's right. in the rack. And then well, you're taking it and you're putting in this um, environment that's, you know, has all this, um, you know, enrichment, uh, let's say. Is that going to stress that animal out? Uh, who knows? I, I don't know. I, I don't well, know, I think I, he did. Feeling what they, maybe. I think he did. I think he said, uh, I do believe he did say they had at heart. It was a ratio. It was a certain ratio could adjust. <laughs> to the better enclosures and the others just they panicked they just you know they just didn't know how to adjust to all that enrichment at once you know over stimuli type of deal from my from what i remember you know it's been a while come, so yeah and i think uh i think it comes down to the the 
the the law that I've always lived life by is like I try to not do anything in excess because right. excess is bad, right? You know, right. it's like with anything you want to, yeah. If you eat, I don't know, if you eat something that's not necessarily the healthiest, but you don't eat it all the time, is it going to kill you? Eh, I don't know, probably not. You know, but like, I don't know. That's that's sort of like I, my feeling is is that you have these snakes that are just put into you know uh, let's say new Paul Python person comes along and purchases the snake and then puts it in basically a, a jungle. Um, number one, that's really hard to. Uh, I, I think it's really hard to uh, replicate that a hundred percent. And if you're not doing things the right way and having to me that 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 mindset it, it really requires a lot of thought and design into that not just throwing you know what i'm saying like how the if you're going to use uv lights say and he and heating and this and that and like how those lights come on and where they're at and where they're positioned and like is the snake going to be able to hide and not and have certain things available to it to or is it only going to be in this one spot of the cage to where they can get it um um i don't know i just think that maybe i don't know i don't know i'm just sort of thinking out loud but Maybe that's going to be stressful for an animal that's used not used to having that. If that makes sense, I yeah, I think it, and yeah, because so, and I think it was something along the lines too. Is like I remember Ryan saying something about this. I had this conversation with him, and I go, you know, if you, um, especially like him being an ambient guy, and when I get this new building, I plan on doing ambient. Cause I just, I don't want to have to buy a ton of thermostats is why I decided just to stick with ambient. Cause you know how right. thermostats can be, that can ridiculous yeah. how many, like how yeah. many I would need to get. And it just, and I honestly, I just hate setting up thermostats too. I, you know, I'm, I'm so, I don't know. I'm horrible with technology and some of those herb stats, man, just <laughs> had to be a pain in the ass. Yeah. I just want on and off. That's all I want. And then a temperature right. adjustment. But anyways, yeah, uh, like ambient. If you're not going to have a huge enclosure, then you're probably going to want to do – well, you, you don't have to do, but it's probably more recommended to do ambient because now they're forcing a less space. It's kind of like what I remember Ryan would say this a lot with the chondros and stuff is people would put them in these four-by-two-by-two by two enclosures, but I have a heat panel or – a heat panel over nearly half the enclosure and it'd be way too hot. So the animal's only using most of the time, only using half of that enclosure compared to like his might be half the size, but he's doing ambient. So the animal will utilize it more. But in, and if you did the opposite and gave it a bigger enclosure, that's going to be harder to keep an ambient temperature in that enclosure than having good hot spots and more fluctuation in temperatures and letting the animal kind of choose it. You know, right. I'll be able to experiment with this in the coming years because I'm going to I plan on putting some retics in some decent size enclosures. So I'm going to I'm going to experiment with this because, you know, try it out, I guess. Yeah, why not? For sure. I think I think probably the other to my to the point I was making earlier is kind of to, to finish that thought was sort of uh, 
as you were talking, it sort of popped into my head. It's like, I'm not saying that that, that animal that's coming in and is stressed by that overstimulation as they're put in this enclosure, but like maybe it's a gradual thing that you add in, you know, maybe it's like you, to, to your point, it's not like, it's too much, too much to take in all at one time. So it's like, it's a gradual thing. Um, yeah, I, as far as the, uh, you know, you made a comment earlier about doing multiple species. Um, I think that's why, like, I, Owen doesn't give himself enough credit, right? Because yeah, he's, he's not only stud. breeding, he's not only breeding pythons, but he's also breeding colubrids, and some <laughs> of the colubrids are difficult to breed or whatever. And like, how is he? You know, it fascinates me of how he's able to manage that in a, in a room, like you know. It, I don't know. To me, that's that's like really being in tune with your with your room and, and what's right. going on and, and whatnot. But see, he would be a guest to have on. If shoot, um, actually, man, I gotta. Rob would probably know about more know more about this since he does a lot of the candoya and stuff. A lot of the small lizard eating species, and you know. Uh, so, how do you start your babies? I, I'm saying this because I'm getting a perthensis clutch coming, and I have a theory. <laughs> and I've yeah. I told Eric about this, and I, I've been I hear all the time about these chondro people and their prolapsing issues. And I've had a few uh, anteresia anteresia issues, and I, I in my brain I can't help but think because if I'm not mistaken, Jeff uh, Jeff Murray breeds a lot of the cook eye and granadensis feeds i think a lot of those lizards and i need yep. i've been meaning to ask him for the longest time do you face any prolapse issues is it because we're feeding pinkies full of milk to these animals that are causing digestive issues that we that mammals will get when they get older and is that what we're kind of seeing in the pythons that are eating animals they would never eat in the wild and i you know I don't know. You you got me on this topic when you start talking about other species, and that was something. That's something that's really been on my mind here these last mm. few few months. I would say it's really been eating at me. And uh, Rob would probably be the most, you know, qualified. Sure. Yeah, I I think there's probably something to that. Certainly. So the qualifiers I would give is if you can have something that'll take a readily available domestic rodent, that's all. That's great. Um, right. Certainly, it's easier. The thing is, you probably want just watch how its condition is doing relative to feeding it that. Because if you think about it, right, a pink the diameter of a pinky versus a lizard of that same diameter, you're going to have a dramatically larger food packet on that lizard than you are in the pinky, right? So our pinky that's what two thirds of an inch wide is going to be three quarters of an inch to an inch long, while a lizard that's two-thirds of an inch wide could easily be four and a half inches long, including its tail. Like if you're talking brown and all, that could be a medium right. brown and all. has the same width. Um, so what I've seen, especially, I think it would be less of, slightly less of an issue on Perthensis because they're relatively compact. But if you're talking about a species that's like really long and slender, you're, you're going to need to be very careful with that or the – you know, essentially, it's not not from a perspective of overfeeding, but rather from underfeeding. That if you are too far apart with your meal, um, you might actually run into issues there. Certainly, in terms of the Caribbean boas and 
candelier are very slow metabolism, so I didn't see it in that instance. Corral the you know the non-true perching corallus, shall we say? You know, I think are in that same space where those are long, thin animals. Um, but yeah, I I think feeding lizards makes a bunch of sense. Here's the thing: like, I'm not averse to inherently averse to not feeding them lizards. So when people talk about that, that makes a bunch of sense. At the same time, when people uh, take a very militant, it's going to eat a pinky or it's going to die. If that's if you're talking about something where nine out of ten animals in your clutch hatched out and were willing to take a pinky, okay, I can accept that. If you take that approach and zero out of ten of your F1 Alterna or Perthensis or Caribbean boas or whatever it would be, right, if none of them are willing to feed and you just say they're going to eat a mouse or they're going to die, that's on you. You shouldn't be reproducing those animals. Um, right. You know, fundamentally, like I get it, but if we're talking about the thing where, like, okay, actually, it's reasonable for me to be applying this criteria, that's one thing. If you're just irrationally applying that, saying, "Oh wow, these acrocordus won't come out of the water and eat mice off hemostats," <laughs> that's you know, that's obviously your fault. So I think most right. of the time when people say this, we're sort of in a middle ground, and I would just push back a little and be like. Make sure that, you know, it's a rational approach. So, yeah, on a, you know, obviously multi-generational perthensis, I I think you could take whatever approach you wanted to. If you want to feed them, if I'd probably, if it was me, I'd offer them all pink, see what happened, hope for the best. And then amongst those that didn't take them, yeah, I think you're probably in this. I would probably go to a scented pink first. Just with how compact they are, I don't think it's a huge issue in terms of then, you know, basically it's what people talk about when they talk about kicking off the metabolism of a neonate, right? So you can run into that on things that want a lizard if they then are difficult to feed either multiple items in one sitting or to feed regularly. Like if it's a big process or they're not super willing to do it and they're that long lean, you can get into some trouble on that for sure. Okay. Well, I I was mainly – it was mainly because of the – like, because a lot of the conjure people were talking about well-established, not well-established, let me rephrase, animals that were eating pinkies readily but suddenly prolapsed. Would you say that was because they're feeding pinkies or would you say, hey, maybe if we start feeding lizards, we might – or does – do you know people who feed lizards that still run into prolapsing issues? Because I, I generally am curious. I know you can get um, – they've talked about hydration, but Jesus Christ, dude, I've seen some of these conjure guys put – water bowls that fill up 90% of the tub they're in. And I'm like, if this thing's too stupid to drink out of the water or it's just not getting hydrated at all, that just, it doesn't make sense to me that it's hydration that's causing the prolapse. To me, it sounds more like a dietary problem. And to me, milk would be the only thing I could think of in a pinky, you know, unless you're starving those pinkies to drain whatever milk out of them. But I, that's the only thing in my mind I'm thinking of. So I'm, I'm even talking about animals that are eating pinkies, but still prolapse. Like, I mean, whole, almost a quarter or a whole clutch or something might pro. Like, I'm hearing this from some chondro people, and I'm in my head, I just, I, I just can't help but think that, you know, it, it just seems to me more logical that it would make more sense to feed, get an, a, a breeder establishing a, a, a easy-to-breed gecko, skink, and then just feed that rather than trying to hopefully you can get animals that are after multi-generations 
you know, it just seemed easier to me. I know you have to deal with the whole viral thing as far as like more viruses can pass back and forth between lizards and, you know, snakes compared to rodent or mammals and reptiles. But still, I just think it, it almost seems like it'd just be easier in my mind to just establish a group of, of one of those compared to, and like I said, I, I was just curious if you thought maybe that's what that prolapsing is from is just feeding pinkies compared to if we did lizards or something instead. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought about it in that context. I would say, to me, the prolapse stuff just means something's off, right? In the sense, yeah, of it, right. It could be hydration. It could be their um, their physicality, right? Their movement, their right. structure, the size of the item relative to their own body. Maybe that is a spot then of feeding too frequently, so that they're retaining waste, and then they're really. Right. I mean, that's basically what those those prolapses are, right? Is that it's um, they have waste that's stuck inside their body cavity, and the effort to expel it is so substantial that it causes, you know, causes uh, uh, their intestines to go out with it. You know, their colon or intestines to go out with it. Um, okay. And I think that's why you know people talk about it as dehydration, and that would probably be, to your point, we're, there we're talking about like the clinical to subclinical levels of dehydration. Not that it doesn't have water, but Right. Yeah, I mean, I've seen chondros drink for sure, and I've also seen them not, and I've seen scrubs drink, and I've seen them not. You know, it's kind of maybe that's even individuals, but yeah, if that was a systemic problem where like the entire clutch did that, that or even a quarter of the clutch, that's concerning for sure. I, it's just not yeah. something I've run into either with chondros or really anything else. I don't think. Uh, maybe <laughs> maybe it's just chondro people complaining then, because I like I said I. <laughs> I just hear it, and I'm just like, man, I, I, like, I've never just wanted to get a species just to say, hey guys, maybe we should just try something different than, you know. I, I just feel like the hobby just, and this is what I, this is another problem I have with people who just specialize in one species is they just apply one thing to it when something else could have saved that animal or you know got it to establish better than if you just had your ball python mindset or whatever, you know, retic mindset or whatever it is, common species wise. I immediately think of uh, the podcast that Rob turned me on to about the, uh, the, the guy's name slips me, but Rob probably knows. But when he talks about um, hydration, Peter Natchez, yeah, with yeah. the Chameleon Academy on the, the first one on blogging, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So my here's here's just a thought for me when it comes to hydration with with baby chondros. Number one, think about the size that they are. They're tiny as shit, right? And I think that they're not going down to they're not in the Cape York and then coming down out of their bush to the ground where they're susceptible to whatever predator is going to come along and 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 take them off. Um, and going to some type of river or something like that that they're going to drink out of or some type of puddle or whatever. I'm thinking that they're just staying on the bush that they're on, waiting for a lizard to come along, and they're going to eat it. How are they going to stay hydrated? Well, they're going to stay hydrated from these little, you know, I think of like a bromeliad or something where like the water after a storm is going to build up in that one little spot, and they're going to go there and they're going to drink. Or... Or it could be sort of similar to what that that gentleman was talking about when he was talking about hydration and the fog and the dew and the and all these things that are like really thinking outside of that. So to me, in my mind, 
when I think of that, I think of maybe it's the fact of the pinky and the even if it's a little bit of dehydration, that animals, what what are chondros when they hatch out? Like 10 grams or something like that? I don't know. Just the thought yeah, that I was less, thinking. Yeah. Yeah. On some of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't, maybe so. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting stuff. Yeah. For Sorry sure. about the off the, the off topic, but I it's just been on my no. mind. And I yeah. just, I, I, I don't know. Rob, I kind of figured he he definitely would have a, a generally good idea about it since he does a lot of that weird. It seems like weird boa species guys are the only ones willing to take really out there chances with something, and either it works or it doesn't. Compared to python guys, where if it's not fitting this you know uniform bubble that we're all used to, then oh, we're not going to risk it, you know, or we're not going to try it. Yeah, and I mean weird boa people. Like I'm talking like <laughs> you're. I'm not talking like boa constrictor and stuff like that. It, those yeah. guys are still pretty. They're probably they're almost ball python mindset as well. But I'm generally right. talking about like a lot of your corralis and you know stuff like that. Weird stuff. West Indian boas and stuff. Like yeah, that. stuff yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah, probably because they want to establish them in captivity. Right. right. What, you know, Rob says this all the time. He talks about like, you know, some of these, uh, you know, like Puerto Rican boas and all this. There's no financial gain in it at all. Like, what's the gain? You know, you have right. to give them away. Right. <laughs> or, uh, Jamaican yeah, well, boa or any of that. Like, what's the gain? I think it's just people that are just really, really passionate about the species. Yeah, just just don't want to see something go away. That's why I had those uh, yeah. Sri Lankans. Is, I mean, you can't sell them. You just you have them. And right. You're just grateful to have something that used to be a part of the hobby, but then just got forgotten because of, you know, certain reasons. So probably because you can't sell. <laughs> right. Right. You know, right. yeah. Well, I'm talking, I mean. I'm talking even way before that, before they were, like, oh, yeah. I mean, back in the eighties and stuff when they weren't as, you know, yeah. I don't know when they got put under the red list or anything, but I'm sure they made it sound like they sold them back in the eighties. That's why. I heard either, it was either berms or Indian pythons they had, and it was like a mixture of those back in the good old, before the berm morphs picked up. Yeah, so in the 80s when my dad had, he had both berms and Indian pythons. And I remember the Indian pythons being labeled as nicer, but I remember them being just straight up vicious. <laughs> and I, I don't, don't know, know if that's... Per- yeah, I don't the know. Burmese pythons had. I have are pretty mean. Man. Yeah, they're, they're getting better now, but they're they're pretty they're pretty saucy well, compared to. I this. always find that berms as babies, again, yeah, they're I, little, I they're I, tiny. Yeah, berms as babies were just straight up bite me. They bit me all the time. You know, I just remember getting bit and nailed and huffed. They always huff, they huffed a lot. You know, like always right, puffing right. and huffing and what. Well, you you know what I used to you know what I did was a big mistake was. Uh, you know, Burmese or reticulated pythons, I mean, from babies to adults, most of the time, if they were in a cruising mode, like like trying to move around and, you know, if you had them in like a cleaning tub, not in their enclosure, you'd probably get in trouble doing it then. But if you had them right. in a f- new environment or new or a cleaning tub and you bopped them on the nose if they were trying to get out, they would turn back around. They wouldn't even, you know, just a simple top on the nose and they would turn around with your hand or whatever. Did the uh-huh. same thing with a berm, not thinking about it. That thing latched onto my finger. Oh, didn't even Jesus. i was like i was like nope not the same <laughs> doesn't, uh, yeah. 
that wasn't it yeah. wasn't playing the touch me on the nose game. <laughs> it was yeah. yeah, they're having no parts of boop the snoot. <laughs> yeah, no, they at least those two didn't. They weren't about yeah. that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Rob, if you had experience with Indian pythons or not, but I just remember them being vicious as they were just mean. But I remember them being labeled as super chill. Maybe that, maybe, maybe that's part of where that came from. Maybe the baby Burmese were a little more, uh, you know, nippy. Because um, in my experience, they. They're a son of a bitch, but I, <laughs> I had Sri Lankans that were pretty, pretty aggro. Um, yeah. I've never had Indians. I've seen them, um, and they yeah. were, yeah, probably not too dissimilar from Burms, kind of across the board in terms of temperament, both small and big. Yeah, it seems like once the snakes get bigger, they seem to chill out because it's almost like they know that you know, if need be, maybe they can get rid of you quickly. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, you know. I see. I think the more unpredictable one, though, are the rock pythons. I had a, uh, my buddy has, he keeps my bigger pair of rock pythons, and he just got latched onto by the female a few day a week ago or something, just right on the wrist. Uh-huh. He just, I don't, I don't remember what he said he did. He, I don't know if he startled her or what, but she just, <laughs> she ended up latching onto his wrist. And, you know, I was just like, damn, that, that's never <laughs> fun. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I remember buying them and I think I was talking about this the other day. And I was saying we were at Keith's place and I was sort of talking about when I bought my African rock pythons. I just remember Rob's face looking at me going like, what are you doing, man? You know, <laughs> being supportive, I, I, but at the same time being like. Uh, I, 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 I. <laughs> I will I will say though after I got back from South Africa I start seeing a lot more different localities of Netalensis and holy shit man I couldn't believe the variation that some places out there have I mean you get I mean it's it's pretty impressive you get some that look very Angolan like some uh-huh. that are they're, if they're further to the or, they don't really live on the Cape but the ones in the further south they're able to go they uh, nearly dark you know, dark black or brown, you know, and then you got some that are shit. There's some Island Netherlands I saw that were like yellow and orange, you know, I was like, Oh shit. shit. Wow. <laughs> I, was, I was like, That's and it's always, it's always when you, when you, when you just get to see them and you know, you can't have them. And that's when I see the most pictures of them. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. It's like with carpet <laughs> pythons, like with a lot of Morelian or Australian species in general. You oh, see a yeah, lot of man. these badass carpets, and you go, "Son of a bitch!" I'm about yeah. to get off of some of these Facebook groups that they from Australia that they send me on, and they go, "Damn, yeah. that's cool!" And they're from Australia, and you're just like, oh, hey, "That's." I mean, it's not like you don't say that's cool, but it's like rub it in the in the wound type of deal. Yeah, you go, can't oh, have it. Yeah, 100%. or you can't you can't even offer him something. You can't just say, "Man, I'll trade you." Nothing, just son nope. of a bitch. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nope. Oh man. All right. Well, we're at uh, two and a half hours. Uh, I always love talking Python, so I can go on forever. But I got to yep. work tomorrow. <laughs> yep, <laughs> so me too. We'll have to. Uh, we'll have to do it again, man. I was. It was. It was good. Good chatting. Lots of yeah. That was great. Lots yeah, of questions. Not lots of answers, but that's good, man. Right. Just hopefully people uh, <laughs> give people the <laughs> give people something to chew on and think about, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, so, where can people find you, William, if they want to get in touch with you? 
Uh, you could find me on Facebook, Instagram, um, TJW Exotics. You can uh, on my website at www.tjw tjw tjwexotics.com Ugh, can't talk and yeah just uh, anywhere there cool cool uh rob anything you want to throw out there before you jump off no i think i'm good super fun uh hope owen feels better yep. yeah yeah so all right uh that will uh that will wrap it up for us and uh until next time uh Thanks for listening to Murray Python Radio. Good night.